Good evening and welcome to tonight's show. This is an episode of Pizza Punk. So welcome to Pizza Punk. I don't even think Frank knows that this is Pizza Punk. But generally when we do interviews, <laughs> he's shaking it. He's going, what? Generally when we do interviews, generally the interviews on this channel, I try to all categorize them in Pizza Punk, which is generally aimed towards music. But every once in a while, we have someone from the movies. Like we had William Stout, the production designer of Return of the Living Dead and um, uh, He-Man Masters of the Universe. We had Brian Yuzna from Society and 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 Beyond Reanimator, uh, Bride Reanimator and stuff. He that hasn't dropped yet. We've had a bunch of we've had a bunch of uh, uh, film related people. We had uh, James Marandino from SLC Punk, director of SLC Punk. Uh, that that was a fun show. And uh, so uh, while this show can primarily be music oriented, we do as I am. I am. I'm a filmmaker. That is what I do more than even being a YouTuber. I'm a filmmaker and we like to cover and discuss film related stuff. Now, uh, I'm going to give a little brief intro and then I'm going to bring Frank out of the green room real quick. And, um, I, you know, a question and I'm going to leave this for Frank because he so he could uh, ponder it. Sorry, Frank. Uh, this is a question I ask all of my guests, as some of you know, out there know. Um, we ask the question. It's the thesis question of the show. Doesn't matter if you're into music. Doesn't matter if you're a movie man. Um, is pizza punk? And if pizza is punk, why is it punk or why is it not punk? It is a totally subjective uh, answer. There's no right or wrong way to answer the question. It's just I just want to hear what you think. Frank, so think about that question while I do this little intro thing uh, real quick. And please excuse me. I've had too much dairy today and uh, I'm a little sick. So I got a little some little sniffly. I took some of those uh, digestive enzymes, which really help with lactose. I know that's something that everybody wants to hear about right now, right? Like you just were dying to know what my situation was. Basically, here's what happened. As you all know, I am a diehard Alamo nut. I love going to Alamo Draft House. It is my my sanctuary, my cathedral, my synagogue, uh, my place, my hideaway, my place to get away from it all. And I will go. I mean, I won't see anything, but I'll see almost anything, especially if it's horror related. I always try to go as thirty one days of Halloween, and thirty one days of Halloween is where I do a movie review every day of whatever I'm seeing. And I saw that just randomly they were had a double feature of spookies and, and this documentary. I didn't know it was a documentary at the time. And um, so I, I went there to, and as it turns out, it, it was, it was this whole to do. And it had um, not only, not only was not only was it a double feature, but the makers of spookies, we're in the friggin' audience along with uh, Michael Gingold, who you might know from Rue Morgan, Fangoria, and, and, and whatnot. I believe the Suckling as well. And um, Mike had actually uh, co-directed a documentary called Twisted Tale, which is the original name of Spookies. Spookies is a title that I've, I've always seen on the shelves growing up. It's just a movie I never got around to. I was like, okay, great. This is perfect. I want to see it on the big screen. I had knew absolutely nothing about this movie. I go in, I watch the movie. Holy shit. That's that's we're going to talk about the holy shit in one second. But here's what happened afterwards. So I'm I'm driving home and I'm doing a real quick off the cuff review. No editing, just a uh off the top of my dome 
review because I got to keep that quota for 31 days of Halloween, right? I got to do a review every day, which was a slog in and of itself. And lo and behold, um, some uh, uh, one of the filmmakers, uh, one of the producers of Spookies stumbled upon my review and shared it. And I was like, this is so cool. And then I realized he was there. They were all there at the at the thing. So we were in the same screening. I got to see Spookies with all of the, the, the people that made Spookies, but I didn't get to stick around for the second movie because I had to leave. I literally had to, I had to go and I was really upset. I didn't know anything about what it was about. I later found out during the screening it was a making of documentary, which made me more angry because I had so many goddamn questions. <laughs> I needed the questions answered. And um, after talking with Frank, who, who's who's an awesome dude, who also freaking dude dude freaking uh, also helped make freaking street trash. He's part of the street trash crew. I was like, which is you know a staple for me. So I was like, oh my god, I got to get this guy on the show. We got to talk to him. Uh, apart from also that the uh, Spookies was made right here in my neck of the woods. And what really like stokes me when I like discover stuff like that, I am a I consider myself, I'm a regional filmmaker. I've made two feature films right here in White Plains. I want to be like those guys that just make movies right in their hometown. So to hear that Spookies was shot right in Rye, New York, which is where I used to work. I used to commute there every day. It just really, it charges me up, man. And uh, so without further ado, enough introduction. I want to bring out uh, Frank Farrell. And I hope I'm saying your last name right, Frank. You'll, you'll correct me in just a moment. I want to welcome him to the show and bring him out to talk about uh, his uh, body of work. Welcome to the show, Frank. How you doing? Hey there, I'm doing good. How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great, especially after watching that documentary. I'll yeah, well, I'm glad you got to see that because that uh, puts an entirely different slant on, on the movie itself. Yes, yes. So just to fill in super quick, there was a, so uh, Vinegar Syndrome, released a you know vinegar syndrome a, a boutique label that just do they do stellar releases steven says welcome to frank uh they do these stellar releases man for movies that are either old staples that have you know only been on vhs or maybe they got a small dvd release or they give them these big deluxe blu-ray jobs and and spooky's got that and people were stoked i remember i hadn't even seen it but I remember people were freaking out. They were so stoked. Well, man, that Spookies lar was largely out. because Spookies is a movie that got released in the mid '80s. You know, uh, I think the official video release date was like '86, and it had not seen a release on any kind of video format in the U.S. since that time. Crazy, and that's kind of unusual because like almost everything is out there on a DVD these days. Right. Right. I mean, you get some, you still have to this day, you have, there are, there are lots of uh, esoteric eighties um, films oh, yeah. that are just still like, kind of like lost in the either yet, like Scorpion and Code well, Red. It's show, showing up all the time. It's really yeah. amazing because I consider myself somewhat of an authority and I've seen thousands of films, it right. seems, or at least I, I've heard titles if I haven't seen them. And sure. there have been films coming out on, on Blu-ray in recent years that, like holy shit! Where what the fuck is this? Where did this come? Yeah, from? lots of them. It's exciting, man. It's really you know it's weird because we're watching like the death of things on some levels, and then on other levels you have these boutique labels that are giving these beautiful, beautiful releases 
to films that nobody would have given a shit about like 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Suddenly they're getting these deluxe treatments and there's, there is a small but rabid fan base for them. And it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. So, yeah, and it's actually, I, I, I don't know how small it is because I mean, they, they, uh, uh, vinegar syndrome and several other companies have really driven this market up into a, a, as you say, a boutique collector's market. Oh yeah. Oh, very much so. And you know, that's the thing when you get one of these releases, they're like, first of all, they're like works of art. That's number one. And number two, these collect, they become collector's pieces. It's almost like they almost become art pieces in a way. And I'll tell you when those things go out of print or when they, when they, when they, when they get, make their way through a run, they are, they are worth vast large sums of money it's insane no it's amazing it, it's uh it's been an interesting process because i mean the fact is also at the same time a lot of movies you'll find for one two three hundred or more dollars sometimes on ebay vhs copies vhs yes you might, you might still wander into a thrift store somewhere and find the same movie for 50 cents yes there's, yes there's and no, that's there's very little conscious understanding of this beyond the collectors uh, who who understand who are you know who are used to paying high prices in many cases. Well, interesting is somebody some people want to pay that high price because it's the VHS, and some people want to pay the high price because it's out of print. And I, you know, a great example over there on the shelf, I have Mondo Trasho on VHS, which will never be released because of the music. It will never be on Criterion. It oh, will that, never that's John cool. Waters. Yeah. It's it's go it goes for a lot of money because it's that they can't they can't do anything with it, so that that inherently increases value. But then you have movies that that do have Blu-ray releases, but people want the VHS clamshell box, you know, the big clamshell box of microwave master, and it goes you know it, it goes through the roof. You know, it's insane. Yeah. See, I, I I have to confess, and I've told fans this before that I. I, I don't have the same relationship with VHS that a lot of fans do, partially because for years I collected uh, 16 millimeter. Wow. And I had actual films. And to me, an artifact is a film that you can actually hold in your hands and hold up to right. the light. All right, here are the pictures on the film that right. light through them and they and, and the real move, you can see a moving it's, image. It's a tangible like it's a tangible yeah. artifact for you now now let me let me run with that for a minute because you know my generation feel the same way about vhs and dvds in that kind I of way the other option is streaming now right because because now movies are just zeros and ones they're all digital or they're they're in the computer so it's like when I go over to my shelf and I'm holding a cassette tape, even if I can't shine a light through the, 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 the videotape to me, I'm like, this is the movie. There's the cover art. The cover art exists. Right. Therefore the movie exists. But now it's just all at your fingertips and it can go away any second. That's the problem with streamers is that they take them down whenever they feel like it. And then you don't have the movie anymore. You, you, you know, it's like you're leasing yeah. The titles you well, know it definitely makes sense to grab a copy of any movie that really means anything to you certainly but but the fact is i i can't really bitch about anything because there are more movies available more easily than ever before it's so true and i look for and i'm not you know i'm not i don't my interests are not mainly or not specifically just confined to horror i love movies of all sides 
types, all all kinds, all, all uh, eras of cinema, all countries. Yeah, interesting. I'll track it down. So you're a cinema lover. What what happened to your what happened to your collection of sixteen millimeters? It still exists in some shape form. Um, at some point years ago, I left it in the hands of my partner from Spookies, uh, Brendan Faulkner, who was one of the co-directors, and uh, it uh, uh, we fell out of touch for years. In the oh. interim, we sold off my films. Oh my god, that's so crazy! I mean, those prints today you could like lease them to like friggin' uh, you know screenings well, I mean, and stuff. I, I, there's still lots of 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter collectors. Surprising number of 35 millimeter collectors. Yeah, uh, and I think uh, prints have become, uh, you know, uh, films have become even, you know, greater, you know, uh, value, you know, original objects. Oh yeah. That uh, you know, I mean, I, I have, I have managed to book movie theaters, and I, and I, and I, you know, became very used to just film being film. Right. Right. Um, okay, so where do we begin with... Well, first of all, first thing I learned from this documentary, and again, you know, uh, I, I was, as I said, I was glad I watched the documentary because now I can ask this question, which I would not have thought to ask. I did not know you were with Roy yeah. when you took the road trip when he was shooting Document of the Dead and you you were there, you're in Dawn of the Dead. Oh yeah, 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 and I, I'm I'm briefly you're in the, the documentary. You're you're the friggin' you're the seltzer zombie. Yes, I am. I mean, that's you know you know what's so crazy about that to me, like because now and especially talk about like revered fan bases for films, like you know Dawn of the Dead is it's like you know it's it, the the fever is insane. I, I can't believe Dawn of the Dead just keeps marching on like it does after all this time, including a. A Halloween release in 3D this past October. Yeah, which was very. He did. Uh, Richard did well with that one. He did. He did. He did bang up business. But what's amazing is you drove down and you saw them making an independent film. But now it's interesting how like once a film is shot, once it's like, once it's canonized in those moving images, like you were talking about, mm -hmm. where it's like solidified as this celluloid world that you can step into once light is shown through it it's now so much more you've had these two very unique experiences where you've had the experience of the movie as we all have and you have this experience where you were there when it wasn't a movie where they were just a bunch of guys in a mall shooting you know like shooting ever anything and everything i mean it's great that is so crazy to me that, that was a great opportunity because i had already been a, a great fan of night of the living dead wow and even to the i first heard about night of the living dead when uh i read roger ebert's original review of it back from 1968 right wow now not that many people are aware of this but roger ebert at that time wrote this unbelievably negative review do you know this yes yes and, and I read it in Reader's Digest. Wow. Right? Which, where it was like printed, reprinted. And it was basically like this, this horrendous, gory movie is being shown at kitty matinees. And this, you know, and this, and, and Ebert just destroyed the film. Years later, he basically apologized to Romero and to, and to his readers that, all right, I, I, this is a really wrong call. And I don't know if this is before. Or after, but it was around the time Dawn of the Dead came out, which he gave a highly positive review. 
good on him because like that doesn't happen today no, nobody ever admits it when they're wrong you know the fact that he could you know and especially when you're like a critic where like your word is the be all end all of something like to be like hey i've changed my opinion about this movie this movie is awesome and i was wrong and i think that's pretty great that he was able to do well, that the tone of the thing was basically that you know you know you you don't want your kids seeing this and it really it, it was unable to judge the movie fairly with that as as the uh, point of view, which I it, it sounded like the kind of thing that some editor said, hey, you need to cover this movie and be negative. Well, here, so here's the interesting thing. And maybe you will know this history better than my first of all, I just want to qualify and say that when 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 pressed, when barred, when someone says to me, what is your favorite movie of all time? I don't have an actual favorite movie of all time. But I'll always say Night of the Living Dead because to me, it's literally, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I've seen it. I'm in such awe of this we're, movie. We're, we're in agreement with that. Uh, and, and to tell the truth, I have a similar problem with the same question. And especially, you know, in interviews, people say, what is your favorite movie or what are your favorite movies? I'll say, <laughs> I, I don't know. Do you have like four days and we could discuss? Right. <laughs> right. It's so subjective, man. And so it's like, it's easier. It's partially. It's easier to call it that, but it really is. It, it really is. And we've. I have. You know. Talked. Uh, my face. I've talked my face blue talking about the the epicness of Night of the Living Dead, and I've I've steeped myself in the history. I even worked on a documentary in college. I was uh, an, an assistant editor about the life and times of George Romero. It was called Dead On. The life and mm. times of George Romero was being made by this uh, filmmaker in Chicago. Uh, so I, I I spent a lot of time around a lot. That's why I really learned about all the players in the Romero verse. Well, for me, it was great to be able to to get that opportunity to visit uh, George's set on Dawn because I unreal. I, yeah, it became a key film to me. I read that review, that Ebert review, right, and I was determined I had to see this film, and it was no longer in theaters. Then I became one of the uh, organizers of a film society in high school. Right, and that was like literally the first film we 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 mapped out a schedule of films. We got financing from this film from the school. First film, Night of the Living Dead. Right, and and it had no reputation at that time, really. It, well, here's I my question. Here's yeah. my question. This is what I wanted to ask you, and I was curious to know. And I mean, you you really are the perfect person to ask this. Wasn't there? And please correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't there a? Isn't Night of the Living Dead one of the motivations behind the restricted rated R rating because of what you were saying? Because par parents or people were bringing kids to this movie and not know. knowing? I forget exactly what year those particular ratings began. I think it was like, it was. I don't know if it was 68. It might have been 70, 71, something around there. It was in the 60s, but I forget what year they started mm. instituting. We can actually uh, find this. I'm going to find this out I, right I now. I don't know. I mean, if that, I, I can't believe it because, first of all, it was really it was not a very widely distributed film at the time. It, I mean, it played, you know, the usual grindhouse circuit, but it it uh, right. And it's not like it was infamous as something. You know, it was like it was basically horror fans started to notice it and say, "Hey, this is something different and it's exceptional." Okay, so it started in 1968. All right. And then wait, let me hold on. Let's see if they mentioned Night of Living Dead. I should have just looked on this in the first place. Night of the No, it's not even on here. You would think they would have said something about it. I guess not. Well, the thing I is, I mean, not. it was it, it first of all, it was in black and white, which may have given it a little <coughs> bit of a but it wasn't exactly like I mean, there were there were gorier movies that had been the Herschel Gordon 
Lewis right movies. blood feast yeah I mean they, they're you know they're, those are basically just explicitly you know, like these eyes without movies. a face uh yeah but you know more of an art film I'd say that right that's more of an art film and so is the you know there's another one that is I think it was came out the same year as eyes yeah but when I'm thinking about like films that had straight up gore in them pre blood feast you have eyes without a face which shows a woman's face coming off and you have uh I'm gonna probably butcher this name uh it's a Japanese uh salaryman picture from either 1959 or 1960 called jigoku or jigoku something like that it's in criterion and that shows a dude that shows a dude's like open like open like stripped body that's japanese for hell and i've seen the yes yeah. yes and it's that's what happens yes he goes to hell and his flesh is stripped from his body I don't know if that was 1960 or 1959 but it, it was, was 1960 and, and it's actually uh it's it's I mean to tell the truth I mean Japanese films are just so casually full of explicit stuff going True. back it's a different culture movie. yeah yeah I mean there's uh you know I mean I've seen things that like I I you know I mean I saw a film from the mid 60s uh called uh the other day uh called Fighting Elegy right hmm. And it, it and it's and it's, it takes place in post-war Japan, and it's about the aggressiveness of Japanese youth after the war, looking, you know, like they had no place to to, to go to feel like they're proud or part of something, or, or you know, right after World War II was lost. And so, uh, and this is essentially about this one character's uh, sexual frustration resulting in his aggressiveness, <laughs> and oh. and some of it is just like incredibly clever, but it's like you know like mid 60s there's a, there's a scene where he basically is like with this girl that he really really likes but everything has to be very proper and formal and etc and she he, he he's in the room with her piano at one point and he starts playing the keys with his heart on <laughs> and it's, you know it's a comedy and, i mean yeah I mean, that takes like, talent that's in the 60s that's fine this is like so far afield from anything going on that's in crazy at that time um let me ask you this let's all right let's talk about first let's talk a little bit about spookies and again sure. i explained in the intro i said it's it makes me stoked like any movie that's shot in westchester like always like ramps me up because you know, I decided about 10 years ago, I was like, I'm just I'm not going to try and go to L.A. I'm not going to try and like go to anywhere. I, I'm just going to stay here and make little micro budget feature length films in my backyard. Well, and just do now it. that it's possible to do that, that the technology is there and that uh, you can come up, you can come up with a really nice looking end product. If you just yeah. have some artistic sensibility and you take the time and trouble to do things properly. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that was one of the notes I have up here because when I was watching this documentary, everybody should see, first of all, if you haven't seen Spookies, go check it out. I It took me 36 years. Spookies came out in 86. I was born in 85. It took me a very long time to see Spookies. It's not that easy to see for a long time. <laughs> that's true. That's true. In in fairness to me, it was not that easy. But I do. I remember seeing it on the shelves. It's just, you know, when you're young, when you're young and there's a million films to watch and, you know, I go to the right. clerk and I say, give me what is the absolute goriest thing or what is the thing that has the most well, tits, you know? 
Yeah, the, exactly. And that was a whole thing in 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 that was part of the the you know making spookies was that it couldn't be gory because you're trying to sell it on the market. But um uh the the but that was an interesting theme that I reoccurring theme that I noticed guys we're just going to jump all over the place between the documentary and spookies itself. Uh that was an interesting reoccurring theme that I noticed for you guys when making spookies is that there's so, there were so many um, roadblocks or obstacles in your way for whatever was going on. And it almost was due to technology because I was thinking in my head as you guys are, oh, we have to dupe that. We wanted to do a three-quarter master. We wanted, we needed uh, to do this before they noticed all the film was gone. And I just kept thinking in my head, I said, God, if the technology, if they just had today's technology, half of these problems wouldn't have even been problems. They would have been oh, able no, to. I mean, we could have gone in there and whipped it out ourselves. Like Right, right. At the time, I mean, that became a bit, you know, a sort of a one of the central issues. In that, you know, my uh, I, I continued to work for years with uh, my partner Tom Doran, who passed away before right happened recently. And he, you know, he was, you know, he and Brendan were like, you know, we got to get a copy of this just to have have a copy of it before something is done to it. Uh, and it, it, you know, I mean, to be able to do that, I mean, it would have involved taking out all these reels of six of oh, pardon me of 35 millimeter film with uh soundtracks right so you're talking about like maybe explain that to the audience like in very simple terms why that is so complicated because well you've got the the film itself which in this case is a print from the negative that's used to edit that's what you're cutting and then you have a soundtrack or possibly several soundtracks uh, separate. On, it's separate. It's separate, and it's on thirty-five <laughs> millimeter magnetic stop stock, like 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 the, the kind of magnetic. Keep talking. Tape, keep talking. The kind of magnetic tape used to uh, record things before the age of, of digital sound, and uh, that I mean that alone would uh, be I mean like we're talking like several hundred pounds of, of film and cans and reels. And then getting it into a place, I and mean, we, we, and our the, the real obstacle there is we would have done it. Yeah, that, that, there's film. So there's 35, right, people? This is 35 film, and you could see that there's an optical track on the side. But if this was not, if they were using a rough cut or whatever, oh, sorry, work print. It's known as a work the, print. The optical track only was was added after everything was synchronized and finalized, and that was how the right. film was put in theaters. Now, now here's the other thing that that Frank is talking about. I should have brought this out in the first place because this just makes it all easier. Hold on. This is what's known as mag track, right? Isn't that the name for it? Mag track with so with grips because it's stereo, right? So, you know, if you're an editor today, if you're editing like me or anybody, if you're in Adobe, you will see that you have three digital tracks. You have your picture track. Let's say that you have just one layer of of, of video. Here's your picture track. Pretend this is our vertical timeline in your computer on your laptop, and then. You have you generally, if it's in stereo, you're gonna have two audio tracks. That's what this is. See that? That is literally what this is. That as he said, that's two lines of magnetic tape. Now imagine you're Frank and his crew, and you guys are trying to sneak out the film intact. You gotta locate the right this, you have to locate this, and you have to get all of it out of there and back in time. Ah, but but the real the real problem with that situation, I don't remember whether this was in the documentary, but um, we had an editor who was a friend of ours who we had technically hired. Our company had hired him 
You mentioned work. that in the doc, I believe. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And he would not surrender the material to us. He was because he was technically getting paid by our backer, Michael Lee. And uh at the time, uh, we probably could have like legally challenged him, but I mean, we were a little bit naive in many ways. Uh, but I I regret that we didn't get a hold of that because to tell the truth, even if we just had a video transfer of that at this time. I, I can't tell you how many people would want to see it. We've, every time I, I talk to anybody, they ask me if, if there's a chance that, that that version will show up. Now, that is completely lost forever. There's no way. As far as I can get to what a final word has to be, and that comes from Michael Lee himself being asked. Uh, there's uh, On the Blu-ray, there's also there's another documentary about Vipco, the old video nasties company that existed in the U.S. Right. Is, this is how this man made all of his, his money that he was able to use to finance our film. And uh, the, uh, he, he, uh, you know, he goes on at length uh, about a lot of things, but uh, one of the things he supposedly said uh, to the people working on it off camera when they asked him about that is he said, oh, no, that's, that's all gone a long time ago. So he just trashed it. You, he might, well, you, from what, the way you describe him in the documentary and just his poor common sense and just his ridiculous, like the ridiculous things that he was saying as a non-filmmaker trying to uh, uh, influence the, the, the filmmaking of the film, it is possible maybe that he threw it away or maybe I'd like to hope, I'd like to hope, uh, to take some solace that. This is the answer I tell someone the footage no longer exists. Okay, look, I, I I agree. I hope so. Too. Let's pretend. Let's hope that. And let's take some solace and perhaps maybe either because he didn't know because he wanted to just randomly put someone in a gorilla suit for two seconds or ran or add farting noises to these muck men. Um, let's hope that he thought that he mistook or that it's in some sort of wrong can. How many times have lost films resurfaced in, I mean, look at like Nosferatu. The story of Nosferatu is the same. By a story from the man who had possession of the footage saying, yeah. I, I put that in the trash. So he thinks I, I, until I, it's, you know what it is? It's like it, when you're watching a TV show or a movie, if you don't see them die, then they're not really dead, and so if I want to hope, I want to hope. Maybe I'm just in, uh, uh, being too optimistic here, but I want to hope. I mean, look at what happened with Nightbreed. That was impossible. No, the fact that Nightbreed got restored. The thing yeah. is, it's just a matter of at some point in the process, if somebody grabbed a copy or made a copy of something, things like that happen all the time. You know, or you just mislabeled. Mislabeled, it could be in the wrong well, can. That happens probably more than, than anything, just about right. I mean, look what happened. I, I speaking of Romero, we were told, and I'm sure uh Frank Frank knows what I'm talking about here. We were told that the three and a half hour cut of Martin, yes, the, I knew you black knew and white, you. yeah, that it does not exist anymore. That it once did, I knew it existed because I asked John Amplis about it and he told me it existed. But that it was gone. It was impossible to that we would never see. Like just trying to imagine that there's two, uh, two hours and some change extra footage of. There's that much more story tomorrow. Well, I've heard about it. I actually spoke to someone who had, had seen it. Um, you know, wow, said, really? 
But the thing is, from what I mean, at three and a half hours, that has to be very similar to what our first cut of Spookies was like. Meaning, it's like it's it's a rough cut. It's just uh, yeah, of course it is. I'm, yeah. sure it's, I'm sure it's all you know. It's not tightly edited. I'm sure it's got yeah. all kinds of mistakes and and bad shots and all kinds of other things. It's just an assembly of footage. Yeah, but that's why. But we're not. You know, at that point, if you're watching a three and a half hour version of Martin, which is really a 90 minute story, as George Romero intended to be, you're watching that for the historical sake. You're watching that right. because right. you want to see every no, I, stick of footage. I, I, watch, I watch a ton of stuff for that reason. So that's just right. second nature to me. It's like if there's a film that I, I like or I'm interested in and there's another version, or if I hear that the, the uncut version is, like, so much better, I, I really want to see that. Like, like for instance, there is a supercut, there's a fan edit of Dawn of the Dead, right. which takes all of, because originally I believe that there was something, the original assembly, this is, this is, this is mind-boggling, the original assembly of Dawn of the Dead that Romero gave to Dario Argento is, like, four hours long. Right. And he said, here, he said, here, you cut yours down and I'll cut mine. And we got the, the theatrical cut, which is George's preferred director's cut. There's the cans cut, which is longer. And then we got Dario Argento's batshit cut. I think the, the European cut is absolutely batshit crazy because we lose great swaths of plots that like literally make the movie it's not the, make the sense. Real difference as far as I'm concerned, because because I, I and I was actually surprised by this when I eventually saw the the Argento cut, is that it's it's more than anything it's an action movie. Right. Yeah. You know? Very much so. Very we're, much so. Whereas the Romero film was always thought of as all right. Here's an, a horror action right know, film, and that was kind of a unique animal at that time. In fact, you know the film very was, much so. Time it was made and came out, it was very <clears throat> and very innovative. Very much so. And um, so the idea, the idea that like these things exist in some way, shape, or form are I I I think that there is so much more under the surface than any of us can possibly imagine. Every 80-minute film out there, ever out there, you know, apart from like animated, comes mm -hmm. from hours and hours and hours of footage. You know, I mean, yes, of course, there are things that have very low shooting ratios. I'm not, I'm not, I am being a little hyperbolic here, but like the, the idea being that even the most obscure, whatever direct to video movie probably comes from like a two or three hour rough cut, you know, like it's crazy when you think about it. Um, you know, if you think that people say that there's the, it's the one page to one minute ratio. And that 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 doesn't always that's not always true. I, I, as a writer and a, and a filmmaker, I found that it at least for me it it it's absolutely in, inapplicable to what to what I yeah. do. Meaning something depends heavily on like how does the director interpret it? Absolutely. You know, what what is you know if if you know I mean you can take a page and I think you could turn it into twenty seconds or ten seconds, or or you could turn it into five minutes depending on sure. what you want to do. And that's what I personally learned that in making movies. I had, you know, I I wrote a 72-page script that was 100 minutes, and I had to cut it down. I cut it down to 82 minutes. But mm -hmm. that's when I first learned that that was, that that's the case. And so I thought about the first screenplay I ever wrote, which was 120 pages. I thought, my God, that very possibly could be three-hour, four-hour movie if it was shot the way that it was. So it's very, it's a very, I think it's a very subjective thing. 
and you just really don't know ultimately. Mm. Um, but so, so, and then another interesting thing that I noticed that I was really shocked by when watching the documentary Spookies is um, uh, Gabe, Gabe uh, uh, Bartalos. How do I say his last name? Oh, yes. Bartalos. Gabe, like, here's the thing. And Frank, Frank, please speak to this more than me because I, you probably know all these people. Like, there, I, I've been talking recently on, on the channel about like, there was absolutely like this. There was almost like this, or at least I like to imagine from a historical perspective, that there was this like, like this little New York independent horror scene that was sort of everywhere in, you know, around the city and whatnot. You had movies like oh, yeah, well, Zombie. Yeah, in, in the city, especially, I mean, yeah, people, I mean, there were a lot of low budget exploitation films. In Basket general. case, you know, brain but, damage. Uh, but be, but the thing is, I mean, there were there were a lot there were independent filmmakers and people like right. Ken and Locker and you know doing his own thing, and then there were all you know Trump companies like Troma who were essentially Troma. trying to make their own productions and then release them, and then you had Street Trash, right? So you know, I mean, you just but what's interesting is that Gabe is like this weird thread that sort of that sort of goes through all of those. Films. I mean, he worked on everything. He worked on so much stuff. Blows my, yeah, my mind. Stuff. And I mean, I'm proud to say that uh, Spookies was really his first, you know, and, and he stepped up. He was originally the first assistant. Right. And then we had an issue with our, our original effects person. And Gabe was uh, asked, well, can you can you handle this? And rise he, to the occasion. I'm sure. He, there's no way he would have said no. Uh, but he was really capable of it. I mean, he uh, he did uh, something that uh, I think a lot of people with a lot more experience or or, or uh, you know or, or knowledge even at that time uh, could not necessarily have done or or uh, you know or wouldn't have attempted because he uh, uh, he took a, a you know he did a lot of the design work he did a lot of uh, you know figuring out mechanics of things it. Uh, you know, it, it ultimately, you know, it, I'm really proud of the fact that this was his first real project. He went on to become a top Hollywood makeup man, as yeah. did Vince Costini, who worked with us also. And as uh, as really did uh, uh, Jennifer Aspinall, who became, uh, you know, quite uh, prolific in, in television, especially won, won Emmy yeah. Award. Emmy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and I think we were just lucky that uh, we happened to know these people in the first place. <laughs> yeah and you know and at the time all of us uh you know uh effects people uh you know people doing tech work uh, uh myself and my partners you know we were all just trying to find some ground to give us you know a chance to to start making films right right and i mean it's just cool when you find your your crew when you find your people by the way real quick before we move on gary axe is asking about new york ripper and my friend brian here is asking about new york ninja have you are you familiar with either one of these movies well, new york ninja i haven't seen yet but new york ninja is a film that was essentially made in the 80s vinegar syndrome bought like the rough the rough footage they the film was right. currently completed and never released oh my and lord they, they edited it they dubbed it they put in a sound you know a music track and uh, and my pals Michael Gingold and Glenn Baisley, who did the Spookies documentary, uh, were asked to come in and do a you know a making of and a documentary on that, which they did. 
and uh, and I and I want to see that because it should be interesting. Um, oh man, me too. Like the fans are like you know thrilled to get a hold of something like that. All right, a completely unreleased movie that's a typical grindhouse sure. action movie from that period. Sure, absolutely. Um, what was I about to ask you about? We were talking about. I got now. I got. In, I got my my brain. Wait. We're oh, okay. Now I remember what I'm on. Okay, I have a lot of questions. So I'm watching this movie, and, and now I York, understand. Ripper, by the way, New York Ripper, I've seen. That's a, that's oh, a Lucio okay. movie, if I remember. Um, was it shot? That was shot in New York, though. Well, it was like a million Italian pictures at that movie. They'd come in and shoot for like right. three days in New York City. Exteriors, and yeah. I didn't believe the whole movie was set in New York City. Like, like Zombie. Like Zombie. They did the scene on the Brooklyn yeah. Bridge. Yeah. Um, Brian says he saw New York Ninja at the Alamo about a month ago. Brian is affiliated with um, the Genre Blast Film Festival out in Winchester, Virginia. They do it at the Alamo Draft House. I'm wearing the hat for it right here. We just, uh, we just tremendous just festival. At the Alamo and Yonkers, and that's where. Right. That's why he's here. Um, but I got to tell you, I got to tell you, it's an incredible, incredible fest out there. They do all sorts of great stuff with with genre films. I'm a big fan of the Genre Blast Film Festival. And that's where that's where. Um, yeah. I, and I'm yes. In general, I'm an Alamo nut, as as you could see. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about. Wait, now. I OK, now I remember. OK, so I am still trying. So here's the thing. Even though you guys started making the movie and then another, you know, obviously there was a changing of regimes and somebody else completed the movie and, um, you know, turned it into I What I said in my initial review, this is this is and I, I'm sure that it must have been interesting on, on some level. I, I had never seen it before. So you, I was getting th that was my perspective from just blindly seeing this movie without knowing anything about it. I knew nothing about the, about the thing. Um, it really does feel, it felt like there was like three different movies going on yes. all at the same time because yes. there was, um, and but that's, that's the same. It's the, it's the thing that delights a lot of fans who get, who really just find it fun and funny because of that. So fun. And other people find it incredibly frustrating. And I think those are usually the people who will negatively react to the film. You, you want to know something, though, and I I can't even imagine. I do know I've been in I've been in a similar situation with both of my features. My first feature, I wasn't able to shoot the third act that I had written on the script. Right. I had to change the whole third act. And the movie came out as a the movie is a uh, it is a fractured version of what my vision is. And I will tell you that I'm very proud of it. It's my child, the way our movies are our children, right? But mm. somewhere deep down inside of my my heart is the constant like gnawing of, but you didn't get to see what I originally intended. Damn it! And I I can I empathize with that frustration that I saw in the documentary when you guys were expressing such a thing. You know, I mean, it's it's frustrating. My second feature, we we ended up make I ended up making a sequel to a movie that never existed because it was the only way to complete with what the footage that I had. I took the footage from the first movie and then I shot a sequel to that footage. So the original film doesn't actually exist. And it's a sequel with the, with no original movie. It was the only way to complete the movie. And, you know, and that's what I mean, like where 
things get juxtaposed. And I saw that a lot in Spookies. Well, I mean, look, what you happened know? to Spookies in, in, its, in its most essential form has happened to thousands of movies throughout movie sure. history. Sure. Somebody, somebody takes it and does whatever they want in terms of the cutting and puts in new scenes or takes out. Well, that's even worse. That's even worse because you want to know something. At least it's like in one scenario, it's like, oh, well, that's the person making a decision to salvage what they started in your situation. You had your thing taken from you and they, well, we, 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 we chose to walk off the film, but we walked off after being basically abused every day for, for months. Sure. Sure. Can I ask you honestly, and, and, you know, if you don't want to answer this question, you don't have to answer this question, but when okay. you think about it, when you think about it all these years later and you like, I, I'm sure you must replay it in your head on once in a while, in some way, shape or form, do you, would you have done things differently or do you think that I, I, you, you know, yeah, because at, at the time, you know, I mean, imagine, you know, this was the first chance we had a real opportunity. Yeah. We, you know, we had, Sure. gotten we had done other things and been involved with other things and shot parts of other things but mm -hmm. something we're like all right here's here's the money that will be given to you to make this um i think i think what we really could have done had we been savvy enough have we been like you know experienced enough was that probably the thing to do because the real problem my uh my partners and i had with this guy was that he had he had issues with them and because they were, you know, they were in the cutting room cutting every day. And he was with us for like most of the, of the, of the cutting in the editing. Yeah. But he was, he was incoherent from everything I saw in that documentary, from what you guys were saying, he was clearly an incoherent person. He was telling you that he wanted, why not just, it's taking too long, remove the middle part of the scene so that it goes faster. Like the guy he was, was incoherent. He was, he was growing increasingly unhappy with the movie as we were cutting it. Right. Right. And, uh, and, 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 but you know, and he, you know, gave us a certain amount of leeway and what really changed things that it's mentioned in the doc that, uh, uh, somebody who I knew that I had, uh, when I worked at United Artists, uh, an executive there was Tom Gray, who eventually worked for Golden Harvest Pictures in, in Hong Kong. And he, uh, you know, he came to a screening of it that Michael insisted on having that we didn't want. This is our rough cut. Shouldn't be right. seen by anybody, really. Yeah, that, that made me so frustrated when you said that. That was so, oh, my God, that made me so mad. That, that sort of soured him and turned him into like this this even more raving lunatic where but it's, it was his fault. It was his fault. Like <laughs> what's up, Aaron? How are you? How are you fellow Aaron? Welcome to tonight's <laughs> show. Um, no. Yeah. But that's like what, that's like the other crazy thing too. And that's like a great lesson. Filmmakers should really watch this movie as a parable too, to like understand oh, the I'm types glad of things. That up, that, that's how I feel about it. That it's yeah. Uh, something that any filmmaker can learn something from yeah i learned listen i learned a lot from watching that and one thing i i well one thing i i, I think i already knew this it would but it was so completely confirmed for me and it's this it's a you know it's an it's an extension of the adage of don't show your actor their their rushes or don't let the actor see stuff that's not completed especially if it's a micro no budget film and it's the extension is don't show anybody your cut 
until it's in a until the filmmaker feels confident presenting it. Because mm-hmm. what he did to you guys, which was so, I mean, just literally the worst thing that he could do. He took a movie that was not completed, showed it to freaking distributors who couldn't, who, 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 who don't understand who maybe they know a lot about distribution, but who knows if they know about the mechanics of an in, in the process film mm-hmm. and said, oh, it moves too slow. Of course, you're going to think it moves too slow. The movie's not completed. What are you doing? You know, and then him getting <laughs> upset about get it. Plus, he showed it. He showed it to a man who was representing a Hong Kong company. Hong Kong movies were were at the time, and maybe uh, I don't know if they still are as much, but were like the fastest moving movies in the world. Sure, the pacing, and, yes, right. And that was one of the objections. He said he he basically said, "I can't sell this in in the territory I I work from. I mean, this is just way too slow." And what he did, and so, so again, Spookies is literally a parable of what happens when the. Here's a great analogy, you know, it, and it really, I suppose, it applies mainly to like rearing children, raising children. But the the analogy is the butterfly in the cocoon, and it's that, you, you know, the caterpillar must, uh, the caterpillar must open its cocoon or the butterfly must burst out of its cocoon by itself if you try to help it in any way shape or form then it won't pump enough blood into its wings to make them strong enough so that it could fly on its own so by tampering with it you end up destroying what it could be and that's exactly what michael lee did to twisted tail and by turning it into spookies i mean unfortunately that was his business method which was essentially uh you know, sleaze and, and, uh, pressure and bullying and, uh, you know, and feel, I mean, I, I just think he came from a background and a way of achieving success that depended heavily on not being the best person in the world. Shall we say commerce? He came, he, you guys, you guys were raw, pure, young, young blooded filmmakers looking to do your thing. And he, you're coming from the art side of things and he's coming from the commerce side of things and art and commerce have to intersect if you want to make more art but the right. problem that's, is that's the classic uh mix in, in filmmaking it's it's yeah. that's always the conflict in this case though i i just you know i felt we were we you know we came at it so sincerely so earnestly so clear that all we wanted to do was make the best film we could that's all we sure. wanted to do and we wanted to save as much money as possible and not you know, have uh, more expense, and, and and he, at every at every uh, juncture, he just sort of like was paranoid and ac- accusatory, and uh, essentially thought we were working against him and trying to cheat him in some way. Virtually anytime anything happened that was not to his liking. Okay, I have questions now that I need answers to. Okay. Question number one: What is okay? What is the dude where is wearing a black leather Flash Gordon outfit? Why? Why is he wearing? That's what I thought when I saw it. I saw that like white that white stripe, and I was like, because uh, I and you know I did a double take when I'm in the theater. I'm going, wait, what is he wearing? Is he wearing? Is he wearing a Flash Gordon leather jumpsuit, but it's black with the <laughs> white stripe, and he's got and he's like this, you know. 
uh, sort of like, uh, uh, you know, Italian tough guy kind of character. Right. And I'm going, well, what's going on? The first thing I'll <laughs> say is it was a better decision than the red one with the yellow stripe. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yes. <laughs> um, that yes. was gotten. I mean, we got all of our ward, you know, we went to clothing companies essentially and said, all right, look, you know, give us some ward clothing for our character. We'll give you a plug in, in the film's credit. That's amazing. Right. And this was some place that was trying to make all kinds of what I guess they considered to be, you know, hip and 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 new wave uh, clothing. That's amazing, uh, right? And I and I even at the time when we were using it, we sort of like were like, all right, well, this almost borders on parody, <laughs> but uh, I but just we can't went, we went because it was an outfit not nobody had seen in a film before. That that is true. That is very true. And I. That was like, I mean, and that was kind of like my reaction over and over again watching Spookies. And, and I loved it. I was, if you heard, I don't know if you heard me cackling out loud with delight. I was just I, I laughing. Yeah, well, I was one of those people. I was cackling with laughter every few seconds. Just, you know, and I saw it by myself. I didn't go with people. And Spookies is the type of movie that you have to watch with your friends and you have to pause the movie every five minutes to talk about and process what is happening, why it's happening, what the motivation is, why this is why this is what it is. Like, for instance, I have another question. Why is the older guy there? And why is he friends? How do these people know each other? Almost, I mean, as you are more or less aware, <laughs> all that stuff was added by the director of the, the additional footage that was added. Right. Right, and I and I, as far as I can understand it, uh, that went from Michael originally discussing with uh, this woman, uh, you know, coming in to like re-edit and finish the film, right? Then they realized that the climax, which was supposed to have optical work by a member of our original production, couldn't be done, you know, cheaply the way we said we could do, which we could have done, uh, and this uh, would suddenly require like thousands more dollars just to do these effects for the climax, which is why uh, zombies now figure prominently in the climax, even though we were originally told not to have zombies. It was so bizarre. And then I'm trying to decide, is this... Okay, so I wasn't sure. That was one element. I was trying to figure out, I was like, first of all, is this weird guy that's in the coffin, is he part of, like, <laughs> which part of the movie is he part of? Like, uh, quite clearly, he is not. He was an added... On him and the and the cat boy and, and all, all, anything that seems like it has nothing to do with the, the characters who come to the mansion is basically added, right? And and that's what I mean though by like. But here's the thing: even though it's like crazy, and even though it doesn't work, it kind of does in the way that. And here's the thing: cinema at its most purest, at its most, and this was the thesis of the little review I did. Uh, right. Cinema at its most purest form is juxtaposition. I'm taking this image and this image and I'm putting them together without words, without anything. I'm just I'm just smashing these two images together. And then you, the audience member, will find a way to associate them in your mind. And that is what you are forced to do in Spookies. You are forced well, to figure out how as, these as, things as the film exists now. It has what has to be termed a dreamlike logic. Sure, but I, I in the way here's the thing, in 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 dreams things start and stop like with no rhyme or reason and you just go with them generally. It's not like it, right. you 
you say, well, wait a minute, I, I don't like this development. I think you need to rethink this and do this. You know, you just go with it. It's, it's you know, it's sort of and happening. You can do that in Spookies effortlessly. Well, you, you, can, you can, right. But if you are frustrated by the fact that, like, so essentially a story starts, then it stops, then another one is introduced, then that one right. stops. And the rest of the movie is essentially these two conflicting stories trying to come together and constantly... You know, once you get involved with one set of characters in one situation, something else is going on with other characters that you, you know, you feel like you're you're, you're constantly being jerked back and forth. Um, what? Ha okay, one thing I was trying to remember from the screening, and I don't even remember because I just really feel like I blinked my eyes, and suddenly the focus was the seventy-year-old bride who was now afraid, despite the fact that she was a resurrected bride. Um, what happened to to Flash Gordon? And the older guy, and I forget what happened to them. What happened to them in the story? They just disappear. I don't even no, remember. No. Oh my god! Like no, I just yeah. that, those are all the monster scenes. Don't you? You, didn't, you don't remember? No, no. Oh no, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, obviously everybody's the, being knocked off one by one. My favorite being the Spider Woman, which I'm mm -hmm. sure is like the iconic. When that happened, I was like. I mean, here's the thing. Every five yeah. seconds, there's a crazy monster in the different part of the house. And you're like, that holy shit. That was at the core of what we were trying to do. It's, and it's, it's great. Everyone. And it fucking works. It's great. Well, the thing you know? is, I mean, look, we we we, we did this, the, the basic story. We were told by the backer that he wanted to rip off of the Evil Dead. So right. he, gave us, he gave us the premise. He said, I want a bunch of teenagers, and they come to a house, and this happens, and then, da, 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 da. and we tried to, like, buck that to some degree by, by for instance none of our characters are teenagers even though they're always thought of as teenagers holy crap oh my god like the the fact like the older dude who is like my favorite by the way that he just like for he kind of turns into a badass halfway through and then he's fighting with flash gordon the flash gordon guy they just start fighting it's great man and i'll tell you something else too the uh the uh choreography between in the fight scene is great it's really, really well done. Oh, hey, Brendan, who, who directed my partner, Brendan, who directed that, would be happy to hear you say that. He was a big. It was good. That was good. Big I mean, we were all fans of, of like all kinds of movies, and you know, grew up on older movies. And he was a big fan of old movie serials, so he wanted to do a fight scene, sort of in that vein, with like it, sort of so you know, perfectly pop type, so you know, still like you know, like like diving at a door and crashing through it. Actually, like you know what it reminded me of? Here's a here's a here's a obscure one for you. It reminded me of the climax of Mystery of the Wax Museum from 1932 <laughs> or 33. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, where they right before he falls into the wax. The the uh, the choreography in that was very reminiscent of Spookies in the best way. I say that in in the best way possible. Um, so no, but I'm yeah, trying to remember if I, if I can just throw this in every action and or monster scene in the film is probably 50% or less than what we originally intended that we, we had, uh, wow. Wow. I mean, there it's it, a lot of, it's just inexplicable. Like you mentioned the spider lady scene. That's also, that's my favorite scene in the film. I think it's the most interesting monster. Oh, it's um, great. It's just it like honestly, like here's the thing, like it really is like what makes Spookies work so well is the combination of these 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 quirky wacky characters and these crazy monsters, monster in a house story and um 
you just like even even as it is with the with the director and what the new director added to it or whatever it really is it is such a good time it it is a good time you're guaranteed to have a good time watching it you know uh well, so that that's that's not a universal sentiment i can tell you i've had people really I, I had one time had a couple of friends hound me and hound me to see it and i was like at that time very sort of uh you know, unable to deal with the film because it had yeah careers and in a very sad position um yeah and eventually i moved in and showed it to these two friends of mine and within like 10 minutes they demanded i turn it off oh that must have yeah but you want to know something i think now i think now where it's at and this happens with films all the time they come out they either come out like deformed or they come out misunderstood or, or they come out and their audience hasn't been born yet and some one of those combinations and you want to know something and you want yes Aaron you should check it out absolutely check it out you you will you will have such a good time can't recommend it enough um but you know like look at a great example is Mallrats Kevin Smith's Mallrats which was mm -hmm. so misunderstood at the time it was his worst movie he considered it to be his worst movie and he would apologize up and down and the greatest lesson that kevin smith learned was just that he was early he just couldn't understand it and sometimes these lessons take us they take years they take decades until they the 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 well, big pictures you, you know in, in most cases you don't get to do a do-over for these things you don't get you don't get to have something reevaluated and and to put everything in a different i mean the fact is that spookies after its blu-ray release has been so warmly released it's like it's very it's, much it's, so did another 80s horror classic and and that is just is mind destroying to me i can't believe this it, it is uh it, it is something i never i mean to tell the truth i always felt like if the film got back out there on video it would attract some attention right but it's been more than i expected the meaning the fan community had just sort of picked it up and run with it and a lot of people, you know, have told, you know, repeatedly, I, I keep hearing how people love the film. I keep uh, getting, uh, you know, a lot of uh, just positive feedback from people who remember seeing it years ago or people who have just been introduced to it now. And it's well, such let a me ask you this. Let, let me ask you this, Frank. Do you think let, let's take that? Let's compound that question I asked you earlier. If you if Frank, if 1986 Frank knew what was waiting for him in you know uh after the millennium you know in what what in the 2010s right when did it come out 2018 i would have to wait 35 years for people to like spookies yeah but do you think would that have brought you some sort of solace or would that have been a tonic on some level or do you think well, no, because at the time i wanted to keep making films and i had yeah sure 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 we did and as I told you, I continued to work with Tom Doran, and he was a brilliant creator. Right, Sonny Bean and and all that stuff. Well, you know about some of this stuff, then. I mean, yeah, it's, it's really um, the satisfaction for me. I I, I didn't want to make movies. Wait, <coughs> I didn't want fame. I didn't want fortune. I wanted to make movies. <laughs> I, you know what I'm saying? It's like I, I just I do know what you're saying. The satisfaction of, of the creative process. Yes. Uh, yes. And then there's the satisfaction of communicating your work and having other people react to it. You know, and sure. that and when things go right. That's oh, everything about it is is satisfying. And what's interesting, the things you're describing 
are not isn't it interesting how like you know some people like seek out money in life they seek out like there's so many things to seek out in life but this idea of something that's like done primarily for either fame or for money like this notion that there's actually a third option where it's literally like i have these ideas in my head and i want to will them into existence and i want to share them with you and the catharsis of somebody else receiving my work and understanding what i intended it's like i can't tell you how much i understand that i can't i can't even begin words do not describe how much i can relate to that and we do we live in an age now you were talking about technology where you know i learned i realized i was like because right now things as the technology here's the here's the sad reality of today for today's filmmakers myself included who've been trying to chase the puck We've been trying to chase the goalpost, and the goalpost keeps moving every time you reach the goalpost. It's something yeah. has changed. It evolves so quickly, and and distribution is non-existent. If you're an, if you're an indie right now, it's never been more exciting time to make a film because you literally like can make a film for a couple thousand dollars, a high concept, low budget film. It happens all the time, and you every once in a while you find one that's really really great, um, and you can own your work. You don't have to deal with a michael lee you can be your own michael lee that's not crazy Except, you know I mean, I can just intercede here um i mean a lot of this has brought about like essentially i mean i've never had a great uh, affection for film distributors and uh, yeah sure these, I mean, uh a lot of these micro budget films that are being made they're being picked up by various sort of semi-legitimate yeah little companies who are and some of them are actually some pretty big companies at this point who are essentially and they'll put this in the in the contract essentially it's like oh here well here's where we make money for as long as we have possession of your film and there is no possible way for you to profit i believe we you and i are actually i i know that you and i are in the same club and you know what i'm talking about uh online there's a space where these things are discussed, these matters are discussed right. at great length. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's a great, it's a really great place because there's a lot of resources to enlighten oneself. And the reality is, and you're absolutely right, and that's what I was, uh, that that's what I was going to say is that they're the best way if you're going to make any kind of money. The best thing that you can do, really, at this point in time, is is hold on to the movie yourself and put the movie out yourself in any. By any means necessary. And, well, I think the thing is, what you have to do is do a a hand tooled publicity campaign yourself. Absolutely, and you have to do it on every possible level. Yeah, you have to be relentless about it. Yeah, and and especially, and the thing is, you have to have confidence in your film. You have to understand who is the audience for your film. Yep, right. Sure. Um, but I think, especially if you've got something that there's a there is an audience of some sort for that you know you can find that audience and i think you can find it nowadays more easily than ever before absolutely it's it's easier to do that and as you're aware with a lot of these small distributors they'll just like yeah they'll buy your film they'll put it out there with 50 other movies that they're distributing and they're not gonna uh, what i don't understand about that kind of a game plan is like they don't seem to understand where they may have something that's exceptional that they could really with a little of the right marketing that they could make something bigger out of it they could they could you know make people aware of this film beyond because most that's of the their product. business model that is their business model is we're not even going to look we're just going to package we're going to we're going to scoop this up with a net 
and mm-hmm. we're going to package, we're going to send you out with a bunch of different things. And that's why, you know, which brings me to that second point of, of why deal with that when, you know, again, you really comes down to the merit of whether you can, whether people want to watch you or not. And, and, and what I mean by that is YouTube, you can have your a YouTube channel in this day and age is essentially a personal broadcast station. I mean, we are literally broadcasting right now and mm-hmm. we are broadcasting. If somebody in France were to click on their smart TV right now next to Hulu or Netflix or whatever they have and click on YouTube and type in from us and open it up, they would see us right there on their flat screen smart TV right next mm-hmm. to Titanic or Avatar or anything else. And it's just like, if you can get this monetized, then, you know, you can just have one evil partner instead of three middlemen trying to fuck you. You could just deal with Google instead of all the, all the, all the middlemen. And I'll tell you something, you know, I didn't start making money off of my creative work until I monetized my YouTube channel. And now I actually make money every month that pays some of my bills every month, my creative work. And it really taught me something instead of, you know, because here's the th- at the end of the day, a lot of these distribution contracts that we're talking about, they're validation. It's just validation. That's all it is because you're not seeing any money. There's barely any m- money being made. It's more like my thing is on this platform with every other thing. Whoopity do. Well, a lot of these filmmakers, as you're probably aware, they're, they're just grateful that their film is out there and they're not right. even, you know, any thoughts of money. They, that's really kind of not their priority. Um, yes, but my point is, is that my point is, is that like they're, they're allowing, but it's like, they are, they are allowing these companies to take money that's being made in exchange for being on, you know, these platforms. And what I think, what I think is kind of cool or what I really like about YouTube is that it's like sort of kind of punk rock in the sense that like. You literally, you know, there are some move people that put their movies on their channel and the movies rake up millions and millions of hits. And if they're monetized, they're making thousands of dollars. They're making right. thousands and thousands of dollars. And you want to know something? They didn't have to pay a middleman at all. All they did was upload their movie. And I just feel like I, I, I just think it's so exciting is what I think it is. I think it's really exciting. And I just, you know, I just don't see any reason at this point in time with money guarantees gone, minimum guarantees are gone now. I just don't like, what is the point? Cause I think, cause here's the thing we talked about how it's not about the money and you're right. It's not about the money, but at the same time, a, a sustainable, a sustainable system would at least allow a filmmaker to take money that they made from one movie and reinvest it into the next one. Well, movies no, cost money. But the, I mean, the thing is, I mean, it's, it's a more level playing field now. It's still not, really entirely level uh the studios and the, the you know the bigger companies still have really they have the marketing they have the publicity budget they have sure. the ability to attract name talent you know and they have this you know and they already have distribution locked in place so it, it's you know it's impossible to compete with that when you're you know just a tiny little film i mean but but movies get through movies come out that uh you know i mean to tell the truth this past Halloween has been remarkable for for horror movies. Terrifier it's, two, Terrifier well, two, Terrifier two, which made for like uh, 
depending on, on what version of the story I've read, is true anywhere from 150. Yeah, that's that's what I heard. That was that was the other end of things. But even then, um, that hasn't that kind of ratio hasn't happened in maybe like I don't know what, like 15, 20 years almost. It's been a very long time. And I gotta tell you something, and I admitted this publicly before. I'm not a fan of the first terrifier. I watched it, was not my cup of tea personally. However, mm -hmm. I am so happy for the filmmaker and the team and the crew. It's so nice to see somebody break through and see that word of mouth. It's it's beautiful. And even mm -hmm. though it's not my cup of tea, I I have a I have a shit eating grin and I'm on the sidelines just going, go baby, go, baby, go. Cause I think it's just I, I think it's tremendous. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I personally, I I enjoyed both the films. I I, uh, I have not seen I, the second one yet. By the way, I've not seen oh, the second yeah. one yet. The second one is like much better than the first one in in almost every way. Really? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's just it's it's a little more thoughtful. There's an actual story of sorts. Some yeah, of the other characters are somewhat okay. You know, engaging enough. Um, but I, th I, I think what happened there is, is an interesting sort of juxtaposition, too, because it came out, I think, just a day or two or a few days after Halloween, the Halloween yeah. film, right? Which was a huge disappointment to almost everybody. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, to tell the truth, it wasn't I liked it. I, I was not, I'm not a big Halloween. I'm not like, it's not a sacred franchise for me. So I, I went in with no expectations. I had a good time. I was like, all right, this is fine. I like until, at least until the end. Yeah, see, like, to okay. me, it's, it's, it's almost every one of the Halloween movies, with the exception of the first one and the third one, which is an entirely different yeah. story being told. Right. Um, I get bored. It's just like, all right, it's like, I, I, get, I don't, if you're going to do a formula film, you know, play with the formula, do something. Agree. Thoroughly agree. You know, um, you know, and then the opposite end of that, which I don't understand with a lot of sequels, is that they completely throw away everything that was established. Right. You know, and it uh, just doesn't it doesn't resemble it is a uh it, it it completely loses its identity because they go so far off the beaten path. Well, it was like the last Texas chainsaw film, which that that almost played like it was written by somebody who had a friend describe to him the story of the, the original Texas chainsaw massacre and say, Oh, could you write a sequel to this? You you can't see the film. But could you write a sequel to what I just told you? I have to tell you, I actually, so here's the thing. Again, not a sacred cow for me, but I, you know, I worship the first one, obviously. Um, I, I, I had fun. I had fun with that one. I, and here's the other thing too, just to tart back on, on Halloween three, talk about the like premier example of what we were talking about, the Renaissance movie that, mm -hmm. yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre two is great as well with uh, Dennis Hopper. Um, one of my favorite. Actually. Yeah, it's that is just balls to the walls fun, but this this notion that I'm sorry, say that again. Abe Bartalos worked on it. Oh, I mean that dude is a friggin' rock star, man. Like he's he's done everything. He really has. Like it, it's kind of crazy. I, I and, and I really want I want to talk about street trash for a little bit before we wrap up sure. here. Um, but yeah, Halloween three is is that great example of that movie that had its resurgence thirty years after it came out. People fell in love with that movie in 2012, about 10 it, years it, ago. Misjudged at the time because it wasn't a sequel to what they were expecting, right? And I think I think the audience and the critics just sort of said, "Uh, well, why did you bother to do this? This isn't what we wanted." 
You know that scene? I always reference the scene in Back to the Future Part 2 when Marty sees the hologram for Jaws 19. And it's like it's played off as a goof, like that they would make 19 Jaws films, like uh, something yeah, we do have four Jaws, but the idea that Jaws really is just like a singular story, it con contains story within it itself. The idea that they're them doing the same formula 19 times. And mm -hmm. I like to argue that we're actually living in the alternate reality where they made. 15 michael myers movies and that they the the real timeline they real they followed through with the halloween three and they made it into an anthology series <laughs> and have kept it fresh this whole time yeah it probably would, would have been like essentially consistently good right and we're living in that we're living in that parody universe where where we seriously take on 15 michael myers movies with 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 you know yeah, see, leading I, interest i'm not <laughs> against sequels or remakes or, or <coughs> imaginings or franchises right i'm against a lack of imagination and uh, me too I feel, like, I feel like anytime you're just sort of treading water and just giving all right here's more of the same and more of the same and more of the same um what i what i don't understand and i felt this like since i was young is that people, you know, film companies that are doing this kind of stuff, especially horror, a genre that people generally get into because they love it. Right. Um, they should be like looking for like real talent because there's tons of it out there. Instead, they're perfectly happy to get, you know, hacks to just keep churning stuff out or, you know, whatever. Um, they're not, you know, they, they need to have a little more respect. I'd almost say similar to what I don't know if you've seen the the new Guillermo del Toro series. I am in the middle of savoring it. I love that you just brought that up. I'm I'm I, on episode. I'm about to get to Panos Cosmatos's episode, the viewing. I am yeah. savoring it. Flawless. Me, that, that's the one I'm up to too. <laughs> okay, it is. I there is every episode has been just like unreal, unreal. I'm so happy with the show. I cannot tell you how I have savored. Usually I'll binge like an, an, an eight episode series in like a day or something. I, I'm like slowly savoring these episodes, like watching with my utmost attention because of how good it is. I love right. it. And 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 I and Del Toro, whose work I I, I highly respect. I, I'm Same. sure the goal in doing this is he said, all right, I want to get like ta really talented people who I know are gonna do the best fucking job that they possibly can. You know, sure. that's that's be their only motivation here. Um, and I, you know, I, I wish film studios operated that way where they, they, they brought in people who they knew because of their passion, you know, well, obviously they'd have to prove a little bit of talent and ability, but sure. the fact is with passion, you know, you'll, you'll pull everything through, to, you'll get to the end. You'll try to give them the most satisfactory end result that you can. So if I was Jason Bloom, if I was Blum, Jason Blum from Blumhouse. Yes. And I was making movies for $3 million, you know, because that's what he does. He makes a movie for like $1 to $4 million, right? And they they have ginormous returns. By the way, uh, to correct you, actually, uh, Get Out. Get Out was for $4 or $5 million, and it made $200 million or $150 million. So that was a that was another big one. That was, that yeah, was 2017. I, I see that. Terrifier is on a different level. Terrifier was like basically. Because it was just six figures, because it was smaller. You know, uh, true. Yes, get out. You're right. You know, 
I mean, he was already a major television star. Get Out and Get Out was made by a studio, and and Terrifier yeah. was not. You're right. You're right. Okay. So yes. So so then you were you. Uh, I, I stand corrected actually. Um, but if I was Jason Blum, I would take the budget. I would write off two of those movies. Let's say that you take six million dollars, two three million dollar movies. Okay, we're not going to make these three million dollar movies, and instead, let's take that million dollars and chop it up into 10 pieces or even more let's chop it up let's chop up some of them into 20 pieces fifty thousand dollars each and let's go out there and just we're going to issue these as grants and let filmmakers right could you imagine imagine i don't know how many sorry i'm really bad with math let's see here 10 60 that's 60 movies if you did 100k you gave 60 filmmakers 100k budget you got to imagine statistically that a couple of those movies are going to just be bangers. Well, if you carefully chose the people, more than a couple would pay off. It would you just know, be at people. People shit out the studios shit out six million dollars. They don't even blink an eye at six million dollars. To think about like well, the investment studios. in yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. But like, like to think that like the to think that that what what they could be incubating with that kind of investment, the type of creativity they could be incubating, and they don't, and it's a shame. They, I, I think that, as far as I'm aware, nothing of that sort has really been attempted, on, at least on a feature film level. Um, no. I, 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 think, uh, it, I think it's considered too risky overall. I think, you know, it's, they just don't come to it with a certain mentality. That's why the, that's why the Del Toro show, I think, is, is so successful in that it, it's like it knows exactly what it's doing. It knows what it wants. You know, it, it, it's not like uh, somebody who's doing it and the only result they're concerned about is the financial one. Right. Especially because they're not worried about box office numbers. I mean, yes, they're worried about numbers, but they're not worried about how much this is making in the weekend gross. It's more it's already it's already being distributed into, you know, all these homes, you know, so right, it's like. Right, right. And beyond, I mean, the thing is, I'm sure the show is. I mean, it look, you know, there there are probably dozens and dozens of very creative people working on all aspects of it. And in those situations, it's like uh, you know, with a company like Pixar or or Disney or something, you know, it's I, I'm I'm against filmmaking by committee, but I think working and 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 interacting with really highly creative people, their opinions and their feelings and their thoughts and their input is incredibly valuable. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Uh, yeah. A situation where almost everybody is a potential f fan of the movie you're making, even if you got if somebody else had made it. Yes, this is true. And I'll tell you, I was really excited to see. I saw what's her face, she, uh, Anna. She did a girl walks alone at night, and um, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. And she, uh, you haven't seen that? You got to check that out. That is. You will you will really like it from from speaking to you over the last you know hour and a half. I think you would really enjoy it. Um, uh, I one last thing I want to ask you before we get into street trash: Have okay. you seen Nightmare Alley, uh, Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, and what did you think of it? I, I haven't I haven't seen it yet. I, I I'm dying to see it. The original uh, 1940s version is one of my favorite films. Love that version too. Let, with Tyrone you know, Power. It's great. I read the book. So I'm I'm a pretty big Nightmare Alley fan. You I think you are going to absolutely if you remember to after when you eventually do get to it, if you remember to, please message me and let me know what you think of it. I'm very curious to hear what you think. Okay. I think you're going to love it. Um 
Okay, so Street Trash, I watched because I knew at this point, I knew I was going to be talking to you and I knew that you were involved with Street Trash. So I was like, I better watch. So I watched Street Trash on Halloween and I was like, okay. I've seen it millions of times, not millions of times, many times. Actually, it's one of those movies. So obviously Street Trash is one of those we were talking about. Okay, so my generation, I grew up be uh, my my core childhood memories are are perusing the horror i'm sure you've heard this a thousand times from 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 guys like me uh perusing the horror section and seeing the the cover art and having it burned into your brain and someday when you're a little bit older being brave enough or curious enough to rent it and see what what is what is on those tapes? Gary X says he's drinking Viper right now. Um, Where's he getting it? I don't know. I hope I hope it's not Tenafly Viper. You'll be in trouble. Um, but the 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 notion of of like finally sitting down and watching what's on what that cover art is describing and Street Trash was one of those covers where. It just seemed it had the, there was like a tone to that cover. It's so uh, disturbing and uh, eye catching, and um, you know, once you if, when you watch it later on, like the tone of the film doesn't represent what that cover represents when you first see it. Well, no. Well, here's the thing: they they did that cover, and uh, the initial thoughts on marketing it were to emphasize the melting, the the gore, and, and that sure, aspect. sure. Right? I feel the film, to me, that what's unique and special about the film is that it's this totally, uh, you know, like uh, unexpected, very multi-character, multi- It's a hodgepodge. There's so much going on in it. It's not just another horror movie. I mean, the most if most movies Agreed. could have taken a premise and it just would have been a series of, of people that melt and there wouldn't have been really that much to it. This is also one of the things I think some people who have written negative reviews about it sort of can't get comfortable with they're like oh it's it is exactly they'll say it's a hodgepodge it has all these other unresolved plots and all these characters and but that's what's entertaining about it but i don't here's the thing when i say a hodgepodge just to clarify that remark further i don't Mm -hmm. see that that's not a negative in fact well so here's the thing when i and this is what i wanted to i got carried away talking about the cover art this was the most interesting thing about i've been watching street trash my my whole life in that I watched it as a teenager the first time I saw it as a teenager. I watched it, you know, uh, as a young adult. I watched it in my 20s. I've watched it in my early 30s. I've watched it in my late 30s. I've Mm -hmm. watched it as a single man. I've watched it as a father. I've watched it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've seen it through all these different prisms. And every time I've seen Street Trash, I see something so different or I see it from a completely different perspective. I can remember as a youth watching it and just like literally being like, okay, this is the melting people movie. Great. I want to see some people melt. That's great. I love the people melting. I don't know what the hell is going on with the plot. Like it is, it's all over the place, whatever. Okay. This is crazy. Well, and then the movie just ends. Well, that's weird. And then when I get older, like slowly but surely, I see every layer. And the last time I've watched it, I saw a lot of social commentary that I never really considered before. 
I saw um, it was I don't know. It was a really interesting sort of uh, uh, viewing for me to sort of I just saw it in a completely uh, different way. All the different elements that are that are working together. I mean, again, I, I and Street Trash is a film. I'm far prouder to be associated with Street Trash and Spookies in terms of the end result. Sure, uh, sure. And I, and I always just I personally, from the first time we finalized the 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 cut of Street Trash, I felt very satisfied with it. I felt it was incredibly entertaining. Um, I I I think it's. Uh, I can still watch it and not get bored or, or, or it's a ma- it is a it is a low budget horror masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. I, I I really do. And that was that was my feeling watching it this last time more than anything. Just by from the effects. And here's the thing, you gotta watch it with the subtitles on. I had never <laughs> seen it with the subtitles before. <laughs> no, I'm serious though. I, I never saw that. I never saw it with the subtitles before, and suddenly there was so much story that I picked up on that I was not picking up on. Like I had never considered this whole subplot of the fact that the, that the mobs, that Nikki, Mr. Duran's girlfriend was um, that, that the mob guy who comes down is, was sent there by, by Nikki Duran in the first place. So the junker, there were all these like little details that I just didn't pick up on. And suddenly I was like, oh, that makes more sense to me now. You know, that sort of thing. Um, by the way, there's a song that plays on the 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 the, the DVD menu, the Blu-ray menu. It right. that was written for the movie. Oh, yeah. I, I would that blew me away because I'm like watching that, going, that, Nick are you Duran. talking about the, the song that Nick Duran sings? You call me Mr. Yeah. Duran. That's a parody of Frank Sinatra's My Way. Oh my God! Right. I was like, I was like, this, I was like, this song must be for the movie because the and guy's we, name is Duran. Believe it or not, we actually, um, before he was willing to do that, because because uh, Mr. Duran was uh, had gotten most of his show business experience as a nightclub and and uh, performer in Atlantic City, he was a singer primarily. Yeah, and he um, he had to get he wanted to get permission from Sinatra to do this parody of his song before he did. <laughs> and, and he got the blessing and, uh, and I think, and I think I really like that, that for the end of the film, because it's like, it seems oh, like, it's great. Out of, like, no, like this is the last ending you probably expect. No, but you want to know something there's like that. And then the other thing too, is the scenes with Mr. Duran and uh, what's his name? Uh, Jeffrey Franken from Frankenhooker. What's his name? Uh, Jimmy, oh, Jamie. Jamie yeah, sure. James. Yeah, James. Um, you know, you see him chewing the scenery. And at the time, I just gleaned. I was like, I, why do they, you know, I wonder if they like, they cast him, but they didn't realize that he just was so like, you know, that he was so capable of chewing the scenery. Did, did he get more scenes put in the film because of his ability to sort of be charming on screen. Are you asking me this because you know the answer or <laughs> no, I, I do not know the answer. I am. I am like, that's the beautiful thing about like getting to like talk to filmmakers about their films. Originally the only scene with those two characters was uh, outside uh, of the, uh, the restaurant where right. the girlfriend is puking in the alleyway. And then, the uh, uh, other character of uh, Fred the bum comes along and right. takes it away. Um, but that scene scored, like, we just like, you know, just us, the crew and, and the filmmakers seeing it, we loved it. You know, <laughs> we just got off on. Right. And then, oh, we have I to knew give it, man. 
but 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 there were other factors involved there. One is there was also the fact that I think um, uh, Tony Darrow, who was uh, you know who played Nick Duran, was was felt I think that he was being upstaged by Jane <laughs> Lorenz, who was he, uh, he kind of was. I'm sorry to say. I mean, right. But but the thing is, I mean, I think uh, that sort of worked. In a, in a positive way, and that his response to that, I think, was to start playing the scenes more aggressive and more, you know, and and to really, and, and I think what he was, ta- you know, sort of like taken aback by was how Lorenz was just improving his all over the place. I mean, some of it was written, other stuff was not, and uh, you know, and he just, I mean, Jim had this uh, had this just very low key. Ma- I mean, you've seen him, Frank and Hooker, I guess. And yeah, of course, I mean, we did a whole episode yeah. on we did a whole episode on Frank and Hooker, and we specifically talked about him in Street Trash. And we were trying to wonder, we were pondering this on live, like we are right now. We were pondering why he is showcased the way that he is showcased for what is essentially a bellhop in uh in this uh in this movie Street Trash, and we couldn't figure it out. And you're answering because, the question for because- because the response to him was terrific. Those scenes yeah, are very sure. funny, right? They are. Yes. But he was the reason, you know, more than anything that we kept because we realized he could just come up with stuff we didn't expect and it got funnier and etc. And so I think, you know, ultimately there were like what three, four scenes. I don't, I don't remember exactly. But, There's like uh, four scenes. And yeah. I'll tell you something. The ending, you know what's amazing though? I had forgotten this. Like I forget this every time I've seen Street Trash. And this last time, I'm like, oh, yeah, all I remember is uh, what's his face? Bronson getting his head knocked off and then the movie just right. ending. I always forget that that the that, you know, the, the the winding theme throughout this hodgepodge is Tenafly Viper and it melts people. Yeah. And that's literally it. It's like, here's this thing that's weaved through the whole narrative. You have this unexplained liquor which is so awesome by the way that makes it even better that we don't know why it happens it's just this unexplainable element that's just so uh unpredictable in how it's going to melt melt you and i for- always forget that there's a button at the end of the movie they bring back the ten of five viper what you guys do it one more time and it just sort of wraps up the movie so so much nicer you know that was a scene that was written late in the process of making the film after we sort of got off on the, on the scenes with Tony and with, with James. And, it was perfect. Uh, perfect. And, and the thing is, um, it became a thing also where we gave, you know, we did an additional scene and I think Tony started to get a little antsy about like how he wanted to like be able to like spread his wings a little more in the scenes. So he got more stuff written specifically for him, that which is why that last scene is more or less the way it is. Um, I think it imp- all improved the film overall. Um, and the interesting thing to me, too, is like right after that, everybody was convinced, oh, J- James Lorenz is going to become like well-known. He's going to become a star and all because everybody really liked him. And he seemed to have such natural ability. And then uh, what ultimately happened is Tony Darrow started to become known for similar types of Italian gangster roles. And he became a fairly well-known actor. Where, where um, J- James has continued to work to this day, but Tony right. got a little bit more high profile for a while. He did this. Right. Piano. He co-starred in a Woody Allen movie. I mean, uh, you know, it, it uh, was kind of a surprise. Um, And then you have like, it's weird. It's just like, yeah, it's like all these, you know what it is in a weird kind of way. How about this? It's almost like 
I mean, and I say this with high praise. It's almost like, it's almost like the New York independent gutter trash version of Pulp Fiction in a weird kind of way. No, for real. For I, real I, can because see, I can see what you're saying. Yes. The reason why I say that is because you have all these different stories that that sort of weave together. Hold on. We have a question from Gary X. He says, can I just ask Frank, was there craft services on the set of Street Trash? No, no one was allowed to eat at any time while on set. You had to eat out of the garbage can. No, that was we, it. We had people <laughs> doing. We didn't have a craft. We didn't. We weren't. We weren't a high budget enough film to have like a company that specifically was hired to do craft services for us. We had a couple of people in charge of craft services, meeting, obtaining food and narrowed it down to a few places that were in the locale that we were shooting. And, you know, it wasn't that hard to feed people. Um, the, okay. <laughs> there's, there's like, there's so, but it, it, going back to like this idea, if you were to sort of separate all the different scenes or, or stories and then like consolidate them into like anthology segments, <laughs> they almost kind of all fit in their own kind of way. I'm not saying that would make, that would make the movie better, uh, because it wouldn't, it would be it would be, be a little bit incoherent. It needs to have jump from one thing to the next thing to the next thing the way that it does in the movie. Right. But it really does have almost like an anthology esque feel to it because you just you have and and I have to say you know in a twenty twenty two perspective, mm -hmm. almost there's not a single redeemable character in the entire movie except I've determined the kid. I guess the kid is the only... He's supposed to be like the sort of, you know, in a way, the emotional center of the film. Wendy, you would think that, and I wrote this on Twitter, this was my hot take, Wendy seducing Lost Boys, right? He's a Lost Boy, and Wendy, who's taking care of him, but, like, lets him do stuff or is about to let him do stuff. And ultimately, right. that's Wendy's uh, irredeemable factor in the year 2022. The character was originally written as a 13-year-old kid. and Oh, wow. Up... I didn't even realize that. that there yeah. you go. Oh, my and, God. And we wound up casting somebody who was, like, in their early 20s who just looked very young. Right, right. The age is never mentioned, so whatever. Right. But right. I assume that even at even even in the movie, that he is supposed to be an underage younger brother runaway type kid. So right, right, right. But it was what's originally up, Angus? How are you? Written, Sorry, it was written younger. Uh, we decided against that for several reasons. One Makes was sense. that uh, casting an actor below a certain age, it has all kinds of other problems associated with it. But uh, you know, you're supposed to have somebody on the set to to, to teach them because they're missing yeah. school. Right. It, it, it's an entirely different matter. Plus, the script itself was basically so objectionable that it didn't seem likely that we could say, oh, we want your 13-year-old in this movie that's going to get rated X. I mean, it, and, and you also had the dude, the mayor from the Toxic Avenger is in, in there as well. Yeah, Bob Ryan. Uh, and, and we cast him. We hadn't even seen any of the trauma movies that he was in at the time. That's, that's crazy. Lloyd Kaufman has essentially accused us of stealing his actors, uh, but they were just New York actors. Yeah, they, it's the same scene. 
Um, and he, he was a blast. He's one of the better actors in the film, I think. I think he was actually a very good actor. Yeah, he's good. I mean, and then, you know, it's weird. The tone goes from, okay, one thing I have to ask. The scene where where we first see the first melting guy um, at the beginning of the film, the iconic toilet melting scene, which is just to this day, like, mwah, like just, just perfect, like just ex pure excellence. There's a bunch of bricks that are were uh, purposely stacked. They seem like they were purposely stacked up so that when he closed the door, the bricks would fall. Can you tell me anything about these bricks? I Do you remember anything? Location when they were shooting yeah, that. I am guessing that uh, ah. probably while they were figuring things out and rehearsing and stuff, something probably right. fell off, and they said, "Oh well, what if like the, the door got shut and then this got you know whatever." It, it's stuff like that. It's I mean, such a one. Oh, yeah. It's such a wonderful little like like thing. Like just, I, I love that. I love that stuff. He walks through the door when there's no like walls, and then the the bricks fall down. It's just such a tiny little comedic element that really kind of tells you what kind of movie this is. And then the other thing too is, can you talk a little bit? I'm sure you talked about this a lot in interviews, or whatever. The steady cam. You had there was a steady cam on the well, set. I, I, as you might know, Jim Muro, the director, yeah, uh, at, at the time he was uh, a as, as a as a nineteen year old. He was very fortunate to have been uh, gifted with a Steadicam and was very good friends with Garrett Moore, uh, not uh, Garrett Brown, who was the inventor of the Steadicam. And, and from, he, and from since, The Shining, he also did The Shining, right? right the well, inventor he, of the he went on to become one of the major Steadicam operators, and uh, you know, to this day, is still. Doing major TV and film, with with uh, you know, with, with, and his director of photography on a number of things these days. But he he um, that was like one of the big pluses that we had. I mean that uh, as you are aware, a lot of the film is shot with the Steadicam, and at the time that was a high production value thing. That was something huge. Hollywood films did. And you know, it's funny. I was telling, trying to explain that to my friend who I was doing the show with, and we were talking about Street Trash and Frankenhooker, and. I was saying, like, yeah, that was a big deal. Like, and if you watch the movie, it just adds so much production value. This smooth camera that is just gliding all over the place, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a scene also, um, I forget, the black character, uh, homeless guy, stuffing right, turkey. Yeah, st uh, stuffing chickens down his pants. Yes. Like, th this scene, uh, first of all, it it's such a it's such a great scene. It's also like it's so disgusting because it's like these these raw chickens are going down the dude's pants. You just imagine that this guy has not had a shower in a long time and just like all these elements. It's just it's such a great scene. What is the genesis of this? It's just so it's just wonderful. I would say the script. Right, right, of course. You know, um, uh interestingly, that was the scene that in its original video release. Which uh, or was it the? I forget if it was the video and or the theatrical one, either one or both. But uh, that was the one scene to get cut out of our original version. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure in in on the video uh, version. Wow! Um, basically, to to fit it onto a 90 minute video cassette. That's crazy because on the well, I'm glad it was restored on the Synapse disc, which is the one that I have with my nifty yeah. Tenafly Viper sticker. And one of the things that I said in my review, and obviously like the Bronson stuff is great. 
I mean, it's it's just weird and brutal. And his death scene at the end is so. You know what's interesting? I'm watching his death scene this time, and watching he's sort of watching as Wendy like jumps over him, and she's and he. It's like right. as he's dying, he's seeing. He's getting a, a brief glimpse of her of her crotch area. Um, and it's like I can't explain it, but it's like it's just this really sort of like life is fleeting type moment. There's actually like some real poetry. I, I know it sounds crazy to say in a movie like Street Trash, but well, look, look, real- I, 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 feel, I have always felt there are a lot of very nice cinematic moments in Street yeah. Trash. And that's a result of just combined effort. I mean, of uh, sure. the the director, we had a very good DP, David Sperling, uh, Dennis Werner, our editor, I think did a, a fantastic job. Um, there was an effort. I mean, we wanted to be able to make as, you know, the best film possible. But I think, you know, there were a number of things that helped, you know, to make it easier. One was that Jim shot an awful lot of coverage, more than you would usually shoot for the film, uh, the films made in that budgetary range. Sure. And he was sure. able to get away with because his dad was like basically bringing in a lot of the financing, so he he was not being reprimanded. Right. I mean, I mean that's the beautiful thing of being able, again, when you have the ability ability to be in control, and then you don't have to worry about. And again, that is the uh, also at the the center axis of the of of commerce and art, right? Um, right. But the what was I going to say uh, about not Bronson, not about uh, the death? There was another thing. There's another element of street trash. Oh yes, this the biggest crime of street trash. Here is the single biggest crime is that there are not more of them, and that we do not have a franchise of street trash. And again, yes, I, you you very clearly emphasize that. Street trash is so much more than the melting elements that make it, it famous. Because you got to realize at the time that uh, the film was made and came out, it was uh, picked up in this country by uh, Vestron Video under their Lightning Pictures, company, right? Which, which they had just formed for the purpose of, you know, specialty films and like films that might not be mainstream horror and that sort of thing. Um, I think nobody was thinking like that because Vestron immediately, you know, they bought it and then they wanted to release it as a midnight show and turn it and, and insist it was a cult movie before anyone had even seen it. And to me, that seemed kind of backwards. It's like a cult movie is a cult movie because you have you to earn it. You have to earn it. Right. Yeah. And, it, and I think it's Street Trash in the years since it can certainly be considered a cult movie. 100% right? a cult movie Pretty now. Big cult. Yeah. But at the time, I just thought, all right, you can't tell people here's a cult movie no one has called it a cult movie except the distributor that's what happened with repo the genetic opera they were marketing it as a cult movie they were trying to do a rocky horror picture show thing for it and i'll tell you it came off as disingenuous as a result you can't you can you can you know you can make a midnight movie or you can make a movie that might be have midnight movie vibes but you can't call anything a cult film you just can't do it. It has to be, uh, it's like getting a nickname. You don't ever come up with your own nickname. People give you a nickname. You have to earn the ability to be a cult movie. And I just feel like the idea of them, of Tenafly Viper, particularly spinning off into like, it captures my imagination. Again, I was talking about how I love that. We don't know the origin. 
but a part of me like i just have to know more about tenafly viper i want to know yeah. where why it why it does what it does where did it come comes from it's 60 years old the movie came out in 1987 so that means it was produced around 1927 it's rot gut whiskey and for those of you out there who don't know what rot gut is that's what's so cool about street trash and, and tenafly vipers this idea that that it's literally it's an alliteration of rot gut whiskey which is something also from nightmare alley it's something that that transients and bums and hobos would drink and it was not really fit for human consumption it would rot your guts out and originally originally i mean the two famous new york brands of, of low budget wine were ten not ten five viper were uh, night train express and thunderbird thunderbird right? is a very like, famous one yes in, i believe it mentions by name that it's like you know thunderbird or something i can't recall quite well which one but uh and then, uh, if I recall, we approached the actual liquor companies, and they certainly didn't want their product depicted this way. So that didn't work. But I think we were much better off coming up with our own name brand, so but, especially considering it's it's still so well known after all these years. There's a band called Ten Fly Viper. I know, I've heard know. this. I mean, it's but I just like, and but that's what kills me is that like I need more. I want more, and. The idea that, like, I don't know, it just really captures my imagination. And yes, you know, obviously there's, as we said, Street Trash is so much more. It really is. It's like a low-budget horror pulp fiction in and of itself. But um, th the main element is is the melting. That's the, the star. That is the what, what drives people to the movies in the first place. But what's interesting, too, is that the, on the sidebar, again, because of the subtitles this time, I was like, oh, there's this whole subplot where where the cop is trying to figure out if there's a serial killer that's melting people. I was like, that has, I, as I said, I've seen this movie uh, so many times. I have never, I don't ever remember that. Well, I mean, our sound isn't that bad. All that stuff is audible. <laughs> I know, but you want to know something? I have found, I can't tell you, it's not, this is not just with Street Trash. Maybe it's just me personally. Frank, I'm not, I, I don't want to speak for any anybody else, but I can't tell you how many times I've watched a movie with subtitles on, and I'm like, oh, like there's so many times where, like, you know, uh, a great example, Fury Road. If you mm -hmm. watch Fury Road, Mad Max Fury Road with the oh, subtitles oh, well, can, on, that I can believe because there's all kinds of mutterings of stuff and things that are. Oh my God, there's a whole fucking, there's so much, there's so much story. There's so much story in the few brief musings. Have you seen have you seen Mandy? Yes. Mandy 2. If you watch hmm. Mandy with the subtitles on, what one of the biggest complaints about Mandy was that it had no story and it it couldn't be farther from the truth. There's so much character and story going on in Mandy. You just have to know where to look for it and it's it's very subtle, and some of it is in the dialogue, which you need, or at least I needed subtitles for in order to really understand what is going on. So, yes, of course, I heard people talk. I heard Bronson, you know, the best part about Bronson is that he still, you know, he talks about the men. Don't disrespect me in front of the men. Such a great little gag. Um, but just that, just, you know, the stuff doesn't come through always, and I just... I was blown away watching this movie. By the way, also long before we had Dead Girl, we had what's his name the the mayor from Troma. What's his name again? Oh, uh, Bob Bob uh, uh, Ryan. Ryan. 
yeah, you have Ryan finding the the, de uh, the dead girlfriend who dies in, you know, what's funny again, going back to the tone, we're going to wrap this up. I want to thank Frank again so much for, for being on the show and just, like you do, you rule. You are just awesome. You're an awesome. And I'll take the moment to thank you now again. Oh, my, please. Um, the 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 uh, what happens to the mobster's girlfriend is so horrifying and so horrific, and it's played off as such. the 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 tone of it is comedy. It's it's supposed to be funny, but when you actually think about it, like holy shit the movie does take a much darker turn gets so dark and, and and to tell the truth it's like i've talked to people about that in in recent years and it's like i guess it's debatable how maybe it should have been played differently um but at no, the it's, time, no it, it, it's a pro it's it is what it is it's just a product of its times but like at the know. time um it was intended to be more horrific than funny certainly Really? Um, I mean, I know a lot of so I, I understand how a lot how ridiculous a lot of it is, but but it's still I'm sorry, it's like a, it still boils down to like a woman being like raped by like 20, you know, vagrants, you know, who are yeah, standing it's, in <laughs> like you imagine that like that's what's crazy about it. You know what it is? It's like it's presented so matter of factly, like there is no. I, actually, it does get a little kind of Night of the Living Deadish when they like rip open the the, the junkyard pile and pull her out. But it, you're almost kind of like watching, you're like, wait a minute, is that in this movie? Because this movie doesn't feel like that kind of movie. And then it goes there, and you're like, that's what I mean by like the tone being different. And then long before we had a, you know, we I don't know if you've ever seen Dead Girl. Long before you have Dead Girl the the idea of like what happens when you find a dead body what do you do mm. uh is answered by the the actor uh uh what's his face ryan um you know who 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 who's who solves his blue balls problem in the, <laughs> he he's a he's he's a he's quite the opportunist let's just say that he 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 never turns down any sort of opportunity, whether it's an opportunity or not, which it's obviously is not. Even if someone might spot him doing it in public. Yeah. Um, but the idea that, and and it's so funny too, because they're like, yeah, we figured out there, there were at least three, we have three different types of semen, and one of the last one had gonorrhea. And he's like, oh! <laughs> it's, it's like, it's crazy, man. And then, of course, we didn't even speak about the fact that somebody's dick gets cut off. Oh, and, yes, somebody. Yeah, and then, you know, and by the way, again, like I said, Every you, you, single you're aware that's me, aren't you? Wait, that was you? Of course, yeah. that's you. Holy shit! <laughs> Holy shit, that is you. You get your dick cut off. I do. All right, you don't know how surreal this is for me right now because it's surreal again, for me. It's fine. Yeah, no, but like, yeah, I'm sure. But like, okay, that's even crazier. That that was you. <laughs> I'm glad you. Oh so my God, I'm I'm tickled pink. I'm tickled pink because, you know, here's the other interesting thing that that uh, the uh, concept here, when you watch movies over and over again. Remember what I talked about at the beginning when when I was talking about Dawn of the Dead and the idea that like there's Dawn of the Dead, the film that was made by people by human beings, and it was just a movie. It's just a movie like any other movie, but whatever. And then there's the immortal Dawn of the Dead that is, you know, canonized on celluloid and is an artifact and that, that, that there's some sort of, 
you know, realism to the fact that there really are zombies and that these are, you know, every time that you watch Dawn of the Dead and you see this zombie or that zombie, and you don't think that that's a, an extra who has their own life, you know, and, and gone on to do their own thing and, and be their own person for you. It, they are that thing forever. And it's like, I'm like realizing that, like connecting those dots, like how many times I've watched that scene. And now I'm talking to the guy who was in that scene that blows my mind. Like, that's what's, that's, what's crazy. I, I that, that will never, ever get old. That will never get old. That is so funny. You're the, you pee on Bronson. <laughs> no, I don't. No, 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 no. I, well, actually, yes. Oh, pardon me. I forgot. Yes. I, as a matter of fact, I do. Yes. Yes. And then he cuts off your dick. Well, not your dick. He cuts off the bum's dick with the, with his femur, with his femur knife. And, uh, and then that they're playing keep boy with it. And again, Going back to their, every, almost every single character, maybe not every single one, almost every single character um, is 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 like despicable in some way, shape, or form. And in this case, they are literally playing keep away from you, a poor man who's just trying to get his dick sewn back on. And then that guy who catches your dick and he throws it again, he ends up getting uh, exploded by the Tenafly Viper. And it's just desserts. It's like you don't keep a dick, you don't keep a guy's dick away from him. You just don't do that. And he got his just desserts, and that's it. <laughs> well, you know, if you're living in a junkyard, I, it's like you can't expect to be, uh, you know, respected the way you might be in. in I mean, in other it's you know, it, it's interesting because, like, I feel like there is, I, I there are, there's plenty of like social commentary to be sort of plucked out of of street trash like it's not just it's not just like an exploitation film it's not like you know just a horror film like there is there is plenty of of theme there, that you can sort of pull out lot, of. there are many influences i mean like sure like more than most people who've seen it probably realize you know i mean and one of the major influences was simply living in new york city at the time yes where there was a huge homeless population yes and that's how, i mean to see Homeless people on the street, wash trying to wash windshields or 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 arguing with each other. I mean, this was just part of the atmosphere of New York City, and that's what's so amazing about that scene. When you look again, brain damage and basket case, and I was a teenage zombie and Frankenhooker. All of these movies capture uh, street trash, trauma. All these movies capture that New York, which no longer exists, and that's so often true. In the same way that George Romero made Martin about he wanted to talk about decrepit or crumbling cities that was one of the right. themes in Martin and and that was that was uh that is something that is it's taking something from real life and transforming it into mm -hmm. so, like something a cinematic story and that is what street trash is doing with that so that brings us to the 2 hour mark which was a little bit more than 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 I anticipated, but I want to thank Frank so much for coming on. Throw in a couple of plugs before we. Oh, are you kidding me? Plug away, plug away, yes. go for it. Let's hear them all. One is, I mean, a little while ago you mentioned like why, why hadn't Street Trash had a sequel or or you know why wasn't it a franchise? Uh, and I was trying to explain before the main reason was it was not released like a regular movie. It wasn't right. thrown in like a hundred grindhouses across the state at a time it was like in one or two theaters in one city at a time so it, it, it had a different type of release with different intentions 
But the fact is, uh, and I guess you're not aware of this, that there is a Street Trash remake that has been announced and will probably... Uh, impossible. Start- That's impossible. Oh, not at all. No, no, no. <laughs> how is How could they possibly... Rem- like, here's the thing. Look, I... I it's a remake in in conceptually it's not it's not precisely the same story okay cuz i got to tell you there are movies you know there are some movies that can't be remade because they're like look like jaws is kind of an unremakeable movie you can't remake jaws there's well, no way there would just be like no point in doing it no but i'm saying like how could you let's say that you try to tell the story of jaws again or back to the future for that matter really there are some movies that are just so like unique in what they are. Like you cannot remake them. Street it's, not trash. Just, it's not just a matter of the story. It's a matter of all the elements of, of the production. It's, it's the, it's right. the direction acting. It's every element of filmmaking that contribute and combine to make something especially memorable. By the way, I just want to say I am all for, and super excited for anything street trash and i will watch this remake with great and with great okay, well, uh, enthusiasm i'm going to i'm going to mention the fact that uh did you happen to see the movie or which you've probably heard of at least uh called fried barry yes yes i've seen it i've seen it okay yes, Ryan on shutter fried barry is the director of the new street trash okay that makes me even happier because yeah, that is the happy. guy yeah, that's the guy who you want to have him working in the street trash world. But here's the thing about street trash. That movie is literally unremakable. Like, whatever they're going to do and just call it street trash will be fine, and no, I will enjoy I, it. To make the, the same type of movie stylistically would just be, I mean, I, I don't think you could quite recreate it. Uh, if you did, you it would be a conscious mess, probably. Yeah, it, it, you can never recreate Street Trash. However, so when I see this remake, I'll just think of it as like a continuation or a spiritual companion. Because to me, like you literally could not, there's no way to re- remake Street Trash. You just can't do it. But if you're going to do more stuff with like Tenafly Viper and people fucking melting, Fuck yeah, dude! I'm all like, do it. I'm all about it. Um, are you are are you personally involved with this production? I am or... directly involved. Although I've been in, I've uh, had a few online chats with Ryan Kruger. Awesome. I've also been in touch with, and I recently got a chance to finally meet uh, a fellow named Justin Martell, who's one of the producers of the uh, the new Street Trash. And uh, awesome. I'm very, you know, I'm enthusiastic about it because as, as we both agreed, I mean, Ryan Kruger is the right director to yeah. try and do something like that. Um, if it, I, I would be like probably very, very down on it if it was just picked up uh, because some studio thought they could make a few dollars off of it. Right. You know? uh, listen, I'm sure, listen, in fact, in fact, so here's the thing, as I just said that it's unremakable, but at the same time, the concept or the or take as you said just just taking the concept and doing something with it mm-hmm. i'm all for that and i'm all for like give as i said give me more give me more and if that means in that way i'm down but the idea the notion of trying to remake something like street trash it's a mo- it's a singular movie in its creation like you just can't yeah, look the only movies worth remaking, as far as I'm concerned, are the movies that weren't that good the first time around. But maybe I agree. 
had a chance of being good if they if somebody had bothered to do a little bit more work on them. There's a lot. I, and, you know, I have a list. I have, like, a running list of movies like that. And I'll give you a great example of one that I don't think is a bad movie. I think it's a terrific movie. But I just want, again, maybe I, I don't want a sequel. I mean, I don't want a remake. I just want more is Brian Usna's Society. I want to see that story again and again and again. But then you have movies like, like what's interesting is King Kong has been remade several times. Right. Why is King Kong remakeable, but something like Jaws is not? You know, it's like it's like a weird sort of um, notion. Jaws is a more limited concept. I mean, there's only so many variations of that you can do. You know, the scenes, you know, any, anything invo involving a killer shark is going to have to involve more or less the same types of situations and settings. Um, King Kong, uh, I find it interesting that it's actually become a, you know, Kong has become a recognizable and, and modern day movie property and, and a franchise. Um, I mean, my favorite certainly is, is the the original from the '30s, which is one of the, sure. the films that had the biggest influence on me as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think it's you know I think there's a kind of a, a universal fascination with the whole concept. Um, is there was there more stuff? I because I interrupted you when you said there was going to be a remake. Which again, I am I am. Don't get me wrong when I say that it's an unremakable movie. I am ecstatic that there's something is happening with Street Trash. I want something to happen with Street Trash. Um, I just personally think like I'm like, how could you possibly like recreate that? You can't. You'd have to you just do something. No, it's not. A, it's an attempt to take the premise and do something different with it uh, there would be no point in trying to i mean yeah you know, yeah, yeah, yeah i mean i think sure. i think some of them, especially if they have a distinct style or they have other qualities that are unique to that film trying to recapture that is like really stupid thing i think yeah. ultimately but the, i'm sure they will find a way and and you know the anchor there is tenify viper you start with the viper and you work your way out from there and i'm sure that that I mean, because when you think about like what's the one element that's synonymous with street trash that really lends itself to be elaborated on, and it's really Tenify Viper, right? You're not gonna do you're not gonna do it about Bronson. You're not gonna do it about like the bellhop, right? Well, that was I mean, you 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 uh, you you mentioned uh, Roy Frumkus a little while ago. He actually wrote a sequel script to Street Trash. Get out of here! But uh, the money could not be obtained. <laughs> Wait, there was a sequel written for Street Trash? Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. When was this when was this written? And I tell the truth, I have not read it. Um, okay. but I I have been told it included like uh I think it may have been shortly after 9-11, because I know there's supposed there's supposedly scenes in it on on the, the rubble of the World Trade Center. That is shocking to me. Not not the not the nine eleven thing. Just that, just that there was that there was a sequel. That there a sequel was written. That's well, crazy. an attempted sequel. It, it's whatever. Uh, I mean, it was still written. It's written. Right. Doesn't mean, Bear in mind, at that time, the film had still not attained uh, as much notoriety as it has um, in two thousand one. It was. Listen, no, I remember I mean, I it was around. It was it was around there. Might have been a few years after. I'll tell you something. I remember. I can even. I can remember from the nineties as a child. I can remember street trash. Street trash was a thing. 
It was absolutely thing. It may not be what it, you know. It, I feel like it really exploded in the two thousands. In the two thousands, when like it really exploded. But Street Trash had a reputation. Street Trash was like a movie, like a cult right. movie in the 90s. It had the reputation the with fans. I think yeah. distributors, I think distributors and, and you know production houses, if you approach them with something like that, unless you can point to like some solid box office uh, that it had at one point or another, that it's it's kind of difficult because you're talking about a film that, yeah, it's like a lot of people know it. Yeah, a lot of people really like it. Yeah, it's pretty universally recognized at this point. And they're going to look, well, you know, how many, you know, big grossing weekends did it have? Right. Um, okay. So I'm going to do uh, a quick plug for our sponsor. And we're going to, we're going to wrap up this show. Okay. Um, one more so, plug. Oh, please, please plug, plug away. Go oh, ahead. Keep going. That, um, I have just finished. Uh, I think I have finished the second draft of <gasps> the spooky sequel. St- Stop! Yes, yes. Which, See that's which taking. Of, yes, man. Which I think of as the anti-spookies. You should call it anti-spookies. I, I wish we could. <laughs> I was basically told by one of the people I'm working with that for the purposes of raising money, we have to call it spookies too. You, if you want to do a successful crowdfunding campaign, which I'm sure you could do in I'm, a heartbeat. Our, our ambitions are to go a bit beyond that. I'm looking to. To raise, uh, you know, a fair amount more than that, it's a, it's a very different storyline, very different premise, uh, very ambitious in a lot of ways. It is a, it is an action adventure horror comedy. Um, Beautiful. I think, um, I think most fans of Spookies would be surprised by. It. Well, listen, when you, if and when you do end up, if there is any kind of crowdfunding campaign, or if there is any kind of anything, please, I, you are so welcome back on the show to talk about it, to raise awareness about it. I would love to have you on again Thank to you. speak we'll about it. Happen. I mean, at the moment, I think we're going to look uh, to some slightly bigger uh, possible right, uh, right. financing entities and see what we can do. I mean, the thing is that, you know, this is sort of the, we're at the. This is the first time in my life I can like look back and say, "All right, I had a fairly recent film that made some money," and um, and I think the fact that that there's a a very interesting, very uh, different type of a script that I've done here uh, that uh, is based on a a story that was uh, written actually by my my late partner Tom Doran, like back in 2013. Uh, which was got the pedigree. He came, up, he came up with on the the really really far away possibility that someday somebody may ask for a spooky sequel. You want to know something? Uh, and you know who's going to eat that up in two seconds? Like somebody like Shutter or somebody like one of these. I, I want to talk to them about uh, potentially getting involved. I mean, I, I, I'll yeah. tell you something. That's like the type of thing that gets like a Shutter original, Shutter exclusive sort of situation that's where all the horror fans it, it, are flocking. Perfect. also because they uh they uh were one of the first people to show it on any kind of streaming uh situation and sure. joe bob Riggs did a, did a one of his shows about right it, right, right? And, and that um you know alone is i think uh his he, he, did, he did street trash also at one point he did spookies like literally like six months after I wrote to him and said, Hey, you should do spookies. And awesome. uh, I, I really, I have to meet Joe Bob. I have not met him, but I really, I feel grateful to him because he has 
probably introduced that film to more people than anybody else. I, I'm I'm sure, and I'm sure that that also you know builds interest with a company like Shutter, whoever. Just the idea that that that, well, that the is fact out that there. They can be approached. They can say, "Oh, here's this film that you have shown in not just one version, but two, technically." Right. Right. I well, listen. Congratulations on that, and. I, you know, on, on writing the sequel or at least, you know, shaping it up and, you know, it going back to this, this long, tedious process, this, this theme that we've been discussing, it's like you went, you went on the journey that you went through and it's brought you to this place where Spookies is a cult classic. It's beloved. And now you're, you're gearing up to, to potentially do Spookies too. So somebody is willing, you know, I mean, I'm at an age now where most people would be considered washed up and too old to be making movies, at least in Hollywood. You're never, no, you're never too old to be making movies. That's bullshit. You, oh, you, no, I agree. I agree. But yeah. you got to realize I'm specifically talking about the Hollywood scene. Where, right, 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 right. And it probably it may have the whole business has loosened up a little bit in the past 10 or so years. Streaming and technology and things have changed mm -hmm. a, a lot of aspects of it. But, uh, I think uh, in Hollywood for for so long. I mean, it's there. There, there was a time, and it can't be that much difference now. We're we're like the minute you hit forty, you were you you were too old to essentially be right. working. Right, and that's that is definitely not true in this day and age. And friggin', that's awesome, man. Well, I feel like I'm in I'm in a fortunate position right now. I have made films. And I have fans of all ages. I, I, I uh, you know, I mean, we did a screening at the Alamo in uh, in the, the Mahoning Drive-In. Not that part. We did the, the screening at the Alamo, and then we did the Mahoning right. Drive-In. You know, the, you know the Mahoning at all? I was the. I conducted a Q and A with uh, Wes, the Road War from the Road Warrior. Oh, uh, really? what's his oh face? wow, with Vernon Wells. Yeah, I did two Q and As with Vernon Wells. I was the guy that was asking. Those are on my YouTube channel. I'll send them to you. Uh, oh, wow. That was a trip, man. That was really cool to meet him. And I, it's uh, those were really raunchy too. Those got he got some weird questions. I was asking him some really weird shit. And uh, the, it's there's some there's some funny there's some funny stuff on those. But yes, the Mahoning is great. And yeah, I but really they, like they, that place. They, they they did a you know a showing of Spookies as their last show of, of the season. They brought me in. Uh, there so was you met Mark. I met Mark. Yeah, I met. I met like. Mark, isn't Mark great? Mark and uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Valeria. Uh, God, I'm trying to remember her name. Uh, Wait, I think that something like. Forgive, that. forgive me, forgive me for butchering your name. I, I I'm trying. Uh, it's, it's something I read often on Facebook. I see them all the time. Mark Nelson. I see them all yeah. the time at the Alamo Draft House constantly. She's always tagging me too when we uh, when we're at the same screening. It's so funny. I turn around. And there they are, and they are they are lovely, lovely people. They're they're great. Truly. Yeah. So I'm I'm like, you know, I'm pretty happy with where things are at right now, meaning that I'm getting attention and recognition that I couldn't have paid for 20 or 30 years right. ago. Right. By the way, it is Valeria. Valeria. I was right. I just wanted to make sure because I felt really bad that I had butchered yeah. her name. And, I can't, and I'm so I, and I emphasize this anytime I, I've spoken to people or made any kind of a public appearance. I'm so grateful to fans. Yeah. Because they're the reason that the film has the, the attention that it has at this point, that it's been sort of adapted into the pantheon of, of 80s yep. horror standards. So Canonized. Canonized. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, 
apparently the people at the the uh, the last drive-in were so fond of it that they they came out with a a vinyl record album recently. Wow, I didn't know that. Like you know, a, a, with with a cover that's sort of a parody of the Beatles' Sergeant Pepper," and oh my uh, god, and there's like you know like 150 monsters on it, right? And there's like three characters from Spookies and one from Street Trash. Wow. Oh my god, we didn't even talk about that friggin' guy. Oh my, the the guy whose face you you always see. And I was always like, because they always recognize it on the cover, but I didn't realize. I mean, you weren't there when they shot his part, but like that guy, the the wizard yeah. guy, who's become synonymous. With about him. He was part of the second shoot. They brought him in. He has no other acting credits that I am That's aware so of. So weird. Told told me anything about him? I I can't tell you. That is weird. That is weird, and that is sticky. And you know what else is sticky? Do you know what else is sticky, Frank? Stickers. And here. Uh -huh. At, at at the Frumis channel, we are sponsored by riotstickers.com. They uh they are our backers, they are our sponsors, and we are doing a special promotion with riotstickers.com. As you can see, we have uh these stickers, they have a special UV coating on them, and they're printed on vinyl, so they're waterproof and they are sunproof. And that you can get three inch by three inch vinyl stickers, uh a thousand for $79. That's about seven cents per sticker. You can't find a better deal than that. Only at riotstickers.com backslash from us. So we don't have a promo code anymore. We used to have the from us promo code. That's gone now. And it's all about riotstickers.com backslash from us. F-R-U-M-E-S-S. -S. You click there. That's the only place you're going to get, be able to get a thousand stickers for $79. We're going to play the very quick 60 second uh, theme song and video. And then we will say our goodbyes. Hold on one second here. Where is it? There she is. Hi, I'm a guy from riotstickers.com. Nope, that's the wrong one. My bad. We make stickers, banners, and buttons too. Posters and promo cards. There's nothing we can't print for you. From stage backdrops to Riot stickers, we're the bomb. Um, this was I gotta tell you I have ever seen for a printing company. Oh, that's awesome. I'll let Sharpie Riot know that you said that. Um he he's awesome. That riot stickers, I'm telling you, if you ever need any sticker printed up, you can't find a better deal than that. They're great, they they really are tremendous, super independent DIY business, very personable. Uh, they're great. They printed this. This banner behind me, they they printed that banner. So they really yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I really want to. I gotta say, Frank, I had such a good time speaking with you just about movies and filmmaking. That's great. That's really glad to hear that. And I wanna I wanna off extend this uh, invitation 
back to you to come on the show again anytime, anytime you need to promote something or you know what we do, and I think it would be really great. And I wanna, I, I, I'm only saying this because I think you, because you are so knowledgeable about films, like you really are, like well versed, and you could talk film really well. And you're just like, you, you really do, you know your stuff. I would love to invite you back on the next time we're doing. We we do them from time to time, but we'll figure out a good one that works for you. We do a top five, and the way it works is you pick top five movies for something like for in the past we did top five death scenes or we did top five third horror sequels like you know stuff like that and the way it works is you pick five movies but you don't tell the other people so you wouldn't tell me and you wouldn't tell our, our uh the co-host bob you wouldn't tell us what yours are and if we overlap you have to replace that one and so it's like a game of horse you can knock out the other person Oh, okay. uh, you know, so if you both have day of the dead as your number, uh, you know, on your list and you say it first, then, cause you go around in a circle, then the other person has to replace day of the dead with, uh, an alternate pick and it's really stupid and really fun. And you just talk, we just talk movies and we have a great time doing it. And I think you'd be so good on a show like that. So if that ever interests you. I'll let you know. I'll let you know when the, the right kind of show for you. I'm, I'm game. Uh, you know, cool. just to hit me up. I, I very much will. All right, guys, we're, we're going to say goodbye. As always on the channel, we say peace and hair grease, and we will see you tomorrow night. We actually have another episode of Pizza Punk. Wait, you never told me. Is Pizza well, Punk? Well, I've been waiting for you to make sure that I had a moment to, to ask. I to totally ask. forgot. I totally um, forgot to ask you. Well, here's my answer to that. Um, yeah. First of all, anything can be punk. <laughs> you know, you can have a punk attitude in, in any field, in any profession, in any work of art, in any statement. You know, it's just an attitude, isn't it? Yeah, I I love that. I absolutely love that. And you're right. I, I think I associate yeah. pizza with punk because I used to at one time I lived in uh, Lower Manhattan on Avenue A, where like all the like you know there were there were like you know half a dozen like little clubs there. Yeah. Playing nothing but punk music all the time, and there were also like a half a dozen pizza parties. Pizza punk, yes. So they're they're very, they're very they go very well together. That's uh, that was beautiful. That was a beautiful. See, I never get the same answer, and it's always something interesting. And that's true, man. Punk is just an attitude, and it's just how you you can apply it to anything. Beautifully said, Frank. Okay, now we're really saying goodbye this time. We say okay. peace, hair grease. Hang on one second, Frank. Very nice, Very nice to be here, and I'll be looking forward to coming back. Oh, wonderful.